Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. Hello, Cats and Kittens, and welcome to episode 46 of The Deep Brief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and this week, I was so glad to talk to Seattle City Councilwoman and Scion of the Left, Shama Sawant. Now... I know that we on the left resist the idea of leaders and titles and special figures and all of this kind of thing, and it's the movement is we the people and all this stuff, but I cannot ignore the extent to which so many people have become so demoralized by so many disappointments from politicians, from the squad members, for many people, Bernie Sanders, in the context of the Biden administration, and Shama is one of the few that a great deal of leftists still have a great deal of confidence in, and people have questions about how she she remains accountable to her organization, Socialist Alternative. What is the magic sauce over there? Is it just a matter of her own personal integrity? The fact that she gives up the overwhelming bulk of her salary as a councilwoman, uh, something like $100,000 and only keeps $40,000 because she wants to earn the average worker's salary. Is it because of something about the institution, the fact that Socialist Alternative is a... Uh, organization that has an ideological basis, unlike DSA, where, you know, I'm a DSA member as well, but you pay dues and you're in and there's no kind of understanding as a community about what your your philosophical orientation is beyond kind of this generalized idea of democratic socialism. What is it that makes her so accountable, that has kept her so steady, that has made her uh, a foremost champion of issues like the $15 minimum wage that makes her have such trust and have exercise so much outsized power given the relative size of socialist alternative in Seattle compared to um, bigger orgs like DSA across the country. What is the magic juice? I talked to her about that. I talked to her about the uh, successful Staten Island Amazon organizing campaign in the interview with Chris Smalls. I talked to her about the controversy with AOC and the subsequent controversy around him going on Tucker Carlson, what she made of Tucker Carlson's kind of vaguely sympathetic statements of Chris Smalls and the unions atonizing workers there, despite historically posturing as someone who was anti-union. And I asked her about the Pramila Jayapal disappointment of the Congressional Congressional uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsing Sh- corporatist Chantel Brown in 11th, Ohio's 11th District over Senator Nina Turner. And if this means that finally this spells the end for people who are still holding out hope of electoral politics in the United States of America. I asked her all of this, and she gave what I thought were really compelling, really interesting answers. 
And I'm happy to talk to you tonight about that interview, anything else else that's on your mind. Many of you know that I have been co-hosting Rising for the past two weeks. This is the end of this week's hosting, although there will be a show tomorrow. We record extra bits to cobble together for a Friday episode. Um, I'm curious to know what your feedback is about that kind of experience and whether you think this is a space that I should be occupying, whether you felt like this was a fruitful discipline. Obviously, a lot else has been going out in the world. There has been the end of the COVID mask mandates, which we've been talking about on Rising. There is this, you know, Donald Trump, Piers Morgan interview. There is, you know, I don't know, a lot of stuff in the ether, obviously, events in Ukraine ongoing. This is really a space to talk about whatever's on your mind. It's a catch-all. You know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that bad faith is only twice a week. And news happens on a much more frequent occasion than that. And there is a lot that I don't get to in these episodes. So this is your time. This is your space. I'm going to start the episode by playing a clip from the bad faith episode, one that has not been played yet. I have not yet posted to social media to give you something a little bit fresh. Uh, This is Shama Sawant weighing in on the brouhaha with Nina Turner. Let's listen. And then I will open up the floor to you. Let's go. That is where the rub, that is where the rub lies. That is what a lot of people who are elected are unwilling to do. Ultimately, regardless of their intentions, all their good intentions die a painful death when they discover that, oh, for me to be a genuinely a, a working class elected representative who does not sell out means I'm going to make these powerful people angry and they're going to make my daily life uncomfortable. That's where all the good intent- intentions die. You know, then you, you know, it's, a, it's one day at a time. That is why I'm saying lots of well-intentioned people end up doing this. So that is why we, we cannot have just uh, this dead end strategy of getting progressives elected in the Democratic Party. The working class needs a party of its own where we can decide the agenda and we hold our elected figures accountable. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Senator Turner says a true and honestly not that harsh, given the the context thing about voting for Biden over Trump being like set, set, being being like being satisfied with half a bowl of shit instead of an entire bowl of shit. And that's the thing that draws all of this ire. I mean, at that point, why not double down at that point? Why not say the true thing about who you are? Because I think that people can smell kind of the indecision and the fence sitting in it all. All right. Let's do one more to set the, the scene. This is uh, Shama talking about the Chris Smalls interview. I, I wonder what you make of Tucker Carlson telling Chris Smalls that, you know, he supports Amazon and that he's, you know, no union guy. But it does seem like the balance is unfair and that he's rooting for the Amazon organizers. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a weird moment because, I mean, I'm on the right. I've never been particularly pro-union, but it does seem like Amazon needs some counterbalance. Like it's this huge company. The workers have no power. And maybe we could, I don't know, share a little power with people who work there. Is it all just kind of a part and parcel of an attempt to have Chris on and try to get some swipes in at, at AOC, which, you know, Chris Smalls kind of didn't take the bait on or or do you think that's meaningful that for whatever reason, Tucker Carlson, of all people, is expressing support for Amazon workers? I think that Tucker Carlson is absolutely viciously anti-union and anti-worker. Mm-hmm. And that was a moment of supreme dishonesty and disingenuousness for him to 
act like he is in favor of the union just in order to, you know, his goal really was to take swipes at AOC. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have our, you know, we've talked about AOC. We just talked about our critiques of the squad and uh, ALU correctly has critiques of, of the squad and of the Democratic Party, but we should not make the mistake. You know, we should not, I mean, and I think it was a really good moment for us to remind ourselves that the enemy of your enemy is not your friend. That, mm-hmm. that logic does not work. Mm-hmm. We have to be crystal clear that, it's not just Tucker Carlson, you know, he's the spokesperson of a, a whole agenda that is viciously anti-worker and anti-union. He represents the agenda of the billionaires of Walmart, Amazon, Starbucks, and any number of corporations that have uh, benefited to such an um, obscene degree. All right. Serene, you are up first. What is on your mind this evening? Unmute yourself using the button in the bottom right and then talk to us. Serene, I'm going to move on to the next. I'm going to move on to Andy. But if you figure out whatever's happening with your mute button, get in the end of the queue. I'll bring you back up. Andy, what's on your mind this evening? Hi, Bree. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, fantastic episode, as always. You and Kashama honestly could not name a more iconic duo than the two of you. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I'm sure you might have seen this, uh, seen this little circling around with that leaked memo about the possibility that Bernie might be running again in 2024. Mm-hmm. And I have conflicting feelings about it because up until about a week and a half ago, I was still very much a shit lib who was invested in electoral politics. And and so, you know, that not being the case for me anymore, I'm not really sure I really am excited about the po- prospect of a third Bernie run, especially mm-hmm. if he's going to repeat the same mistakes he made in 2020. And I would hope, if, if it is true that he's going to run again, I would hope he would use his... Uh, his campaign, as Kashama uh, mentioned in the interview, as a vehicle for, you know, mobilizing people towards, you know, direct action or some kind of, um, like, adversarial confrontation with the establishment, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we we did a segment on this on, on Rising, and I didn't really say this there because it's one of those things that I can't prove, but I believe... <laughs> My understanding is that, uh, you know, the memo was basically linked by leaked by people who were working on the Bernie campaign, some combination of, you know, like Faz Shakir and co, you know, to draw up the kind of interest that reminds people that progressivism is popular and to potentially use that to help folks who want to win in the fall use the services of, you know, the progressives who worked for the Bernie campaign to help their campaigns and basically gin up the progressive brand. And that's not to say that, you know, Bernie might not kind of performatively run, but remember in 2012 when he, you know, teased the idea of running because Barack Obama was going to cut, was it social security or some other similar social program? He was, he was threatening to make some, some social, social safety net rollback. And he threatened to run on the basis of challenging uh, Obama's choice to do that. And, and, and by, uh, Obama backed away from that program and he didn't run. 
So I could see something like that happening. The idea that Bernie at this juncture, after having kind of, you know, largely conceded to the Biden administration, not taken an adversarial approach to the Biden administration. Some people would argue didn't take an adversarial approach to the Biden administration, even when it was just the two of them left in the Democratic Party primary to at this juncture decide to start from scratch is a little difficult to, you know, conceptualize as legitimate if he felt so strongly about Joe Biden and in his inefficacy that he felt like he needed to challenge a democratic incumbent. Well, why on earth would you have backed out of the primary so quickly? Why wouldn't you pivot it into a third party when you already had the energy of a year long campaign behind you? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's, you know, I, have, I'm not really invested in electoral politics anymore. I still have a kind of soft spot for Bernie. So it's hard for me to like, really you know say anything negative about him but you know at this current juncture you know i just i don't see why he would run again for a third time i just i don't see it well let's ask this let's play with the hypothetical a little bit uh how would you feel if he did run would you vote for him would you donate to him would you volunteer for him all three two of the three one of the three or none of the three well, if I could, if I could vote, I would. Mm, right, 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 right. But you know, with that that situation aside, I don't know if I would donate to his campaign, though. Mm. Or, or I think I think my biggest for me, my litmus test would be if if he is going to be willing to actually be adversarial this time around. Which you know, if history is anything to go off of, I don't know. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is reflective of where a lot of people are right now. We'll hear from some other folks in this. Thank you for calling in, Andy. Thank you, Brie. All right. Case. The one and only Case Study QB. Hey, what's going on, Brie? First of all, I want to give you some flowers, man. You've really been Wait, hitting I'm trying it to give you. I'm trying to give you some flowers first. Just because I'm a little slow with my buttons here on the soundboard doesn't mean I can't get my flowers in. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. But, yeah, I really enjoy I Actually, I didn't finish um, the interview with um, uh, Kashama, but I hope that I don't repeat um, any points that you made on the show, but um, yeah, I want to give you a flowers with, I love the interview with um, Chris Malls and, mm. and Kisharma, the, what I heard so far with Kisharma, but this, something that just keeps coming to my mind is no man's land, no man's land. When it comes to progressives, I feel like they keep getting caught in no man's land because they try to, you know, they start off appeasing to the, the, the grassroots because of course that's where they get their power from initially. And then when they get elected, they try to, um, you know, work with the establishment to to a certain extent, whether it's all the way or halfway, because, you know, we have people like Barbara Lee, who's been mm-hmm. in the Progressive Caucus, they've been there for a long time. And at this point, I consider her just somebody that just works with the establishment. Mm-hmm. And and then you have Bernie, who, um, you know, talks about the political revolution, he's a revolutionary, but then he says, my friend, Joe Biden. So mm-hmm. you like the future candidates, the third generation, that's what I like to call them, of progressives that are going to get elected because somebody's going to get elected in 2024, whether it's Amani Oakley in New Jersey or other places. I really hope that instead of they they learn the lessons of the first two generations, AOC's generation, um, Jamal and Cori Bush's generation, 
and, and see, okay, uh, Corey brought a little bit more rev uh, revolutionary when she stood on the Capitol steps, you know, to, mm -hmm. even though it was performative, even though, from what I understand, she might have coordinated or whatever. I think that's a keep, let's keep going in that direction. Um, and and to try not to be in no man's land. So first of all, can I ask you what you think about that? If each success, successive generation is getting a little bit more radical? Mo, Mo I want to ask you about my theory of progressives keep getting caught in no man's land. Like oh, they I need to, yeah, they need to um, stay radical, stay going. So for example, they should always be going on independent news way more than mainstream media. That's just one example. Look, I, I agree with that. I look. I, I sometimes feel guilty because I can't really be mad at people for not coming on if I haven't invited them. And mm -hmm. I did invite AOC around force a vote, but that's the last time I tried. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, to be honest, I felt like it wasn't going to be successful, so I mm -hmm. haven't taken to just like randomly mm -hmm. sending an email every month. But I did reach out to Corey Bush's people this month. They got back to me and said they're running it up the chain, and I'm hopeful okay. that maybe she'll come on. You know. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and I yeah. think you're right. I think that they should continue to come on independent media if only because I would like for them to have the confidence of knowing how much wind could be at their backs mm. if they trusted us. Because I yeah. think that they get isolated at the Capitol, and I think that they forget that yeah. there is a natural constituency that they have that people like Nancy Pelosi don't have. Especially some yeah. of them that are such big fundraisers, it's not entirely clear to me what they're so afraid of on that front. Right. The AOCs of the world. I think AOC is the first or second biggest fundraiser in the Democratic Party. So as some of them can credibly fear losing their seat and all that sort of thing. And we can talk about whether they should care about that or anybody should care about that. But they can credibly fear losing their seat if they lose the support of Nancy yeah. Pelosi. Others of them are free and they could be more free. They're increasingly free the more that they trust yeah. us and realize that the same community that raised mm -hmm. all of those millions of dollars for Bernie Sanders could be supporting them. If they demonstrate yeah. a willingness to call out the status quo and the establishment Democrats mm. the way we all thought they would when we got them elected. So, yes, I think they're in a no man's land, but it's one of their own creation and one that yes. is born from a lack of their mm -hmm. trust in people power, which is dispiriting mm. because it was people power that got them elected to the beginning. A hundred percent. And definitely, I think they need their own caucus. At this point, we realize the progressive caucus mm -hmm. I don't know what ex percentage of them are just milly mouth or not full of progressives, but they're going to perpetually be electing a leader who is weak. You know, they, we have Pamela Jayapal. Before it was um, Mark Pohan, po I believe, and actually there was two chairs before. And I like the fact that they have one chair so we could just have one leader with a focused vision. But now, because they have so many milly mouth progressives in the progressive caucus, they will perpetually be electing a leader. You know, if half of them are, you know, Chantel Brown kind of progressives, of course, they're not going to want Anina Turner to be the leader of the progressive caucus. So at this point, the squad, they need to, they could be part of the progressive caucus, I guess, but they need to create their own. Well, you're breaking up a little bit for me, Case. I'm not sure if it's just me or it's for everybody. You're, you're not sure if they should be part of the Progressive Caucus or whether it's eight. Again, yeah, you're breaking up. I think you're saying something about whether it's eight, whether it's the eight of them oh, only and a smaller, people. more progressive caucus. They need to say this last. Ooh, Case. Yeah. At all. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Can you hear yeah, me? Yeah, you're back now. Can you hear me now? 
Oh, but maybe you're gone again. Okay, guys, I, I get what you're saying. Oh, so I, and I guess my answer to that, that is going through um the. St- no worries. I, I get a sense of what you're saying. And my answer to that is I think that it is um, better for them to be in their own smaller caucus and to not be in the progressive caucus because I, I think their presence in that caucus gives it the validity that is not earned. Okay. Case? Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like you're cutting up a little bit. Mm. Yeah, they need a new caucus. That's the last. They need, they need a new caucus. I, I that's think that's last... where I stand on it. It sounds like where you stand on it, too. Thank you for calling, Case. Look, when your signal calls back, comes back, feel free to get back in line. Yeah, I'll, I'll, if you I'll want to DM I'll me, if you, you have so any, have if people week. don't already know. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. And if people don't already know that you are the source of much of the material in terms of news clips from the from the cable news that the left talks on in all of these bread tube shows, people should definitely go and follow Case Study QB on YouTube in case if there are any videos that were yeah. particularly spicy over the last few days that you want to DM me while I'm doing this call-in that you think that we should be discussing on this call-in program, go ahead and DM them to me. We can play them and I can have you back up to discuss later on when your signal clears up a little bit. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, talk to you later. Have a great day. All one. right. You too. All right, Serene, let's try this again. I saw you in the chat saying you were having some technical difficulty. Can you unmute yourself now? Yes. Awesome. Talk to you, me. What's on your mind this evening? You know what I was doing? I was tapping on my face, the little, <laughs> and not the actual <laughs> mic at the bottom. That'll do it. Um, love the interview. Uh, I also love how you keep uh, quote-tweeting Pramila Jayapal on Twitter and being like, you know, pointing out each little thing, like, we need a $15 minimum wage, and then you point out that she endorsed Chantel Brown, who doesn't support that, and mm-hmm. Medicare, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. which leads me to ask, just kind of openly, does the Progressive Caucus have any requirements to enter at all? It seems like everyone, because I just saw that Chantel Brown, like, you know, lobbied or whatever you have to do to get in and that's kind of what led to them endorsing her that's a good question so if i recall correctly very recently like a year or two ago they did make a reform to create some kind of a litmus test where there wasn't one they added something to whatever the weak litmus test there was but Mm -hmm. obviously it's still not great so i just googled it real real quick And the progressives.house.gov says, what is the Progressive Caucus? It says the four core principles of the Progressive Promise. One, fighting for economic justice and security for all. Oh, that's vague. Right. (laughs) Two, protecting and preserving our civil rights and civil liberties. Similarly vague. Three, promoting global peace and security. Somehow vaguer. And four, advancing environmental protection and energy independence oh i love that word advancing because <laughs> you right. can literally advance just doing nothing you're I, look at me i'm advancing thought right. i recycle i recycle so i'm advancing yeah. environmental justice you know if you compost you're a king look the cpc it says is committed to helping progressives both inside and outside of congress to work together more effectively in order to make good on the all caps or or first word first letter caps the progressive promise. Again, we appreciate your interest in the CBC, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so you can just put your name on a sheet and be like, I'm progressive. Essentially. I mean. Yeah. 
I mean, okay, so I went to the, there's a, there's progressives.house.gov says what we stand for, and these are links you can click through to, a fair economy, universal health care, which is probably the most concrete thing, and right. climate justice. But the universal health care, that's, I mean, I think this is what I hate. I signing the bill. Yeah. Which I mean, isn't going anywhere because of the makeup of the Congress. Yeah. So it it's just, performative. Right. In Medicare for all used to be something very specific, I feel like. And now it just, it's become like everything I mean, else. The bill just, is good. The bill is good. The bill is specific. It's the bill that we're all talking about when we're talking about Medicare for all. But it is not going anywhere. I mean, it's. Yeah. It seems like people have found a way to just say I'm for it while being mealy mouthed, you know. Like Chantel Brown, who didn't support it, gave kind of performative support for it earlier this year as a way to justify, it seems, in retrospect, uh, them endorsing her over Nina Turner. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask one more thing is um, so I love the $40,000 average worker salary thing. I'm curious what you would think if anyone nationally maybe wouldn't adopt it, but like even just draw attention to it. I mean, you were just talking about Bernie 2024, but I'm thinking like between Amazon and what Shama was saying, like the real energy is in militant labor uh, organizing and it I'm wondering if just, I mean, literally anyone, like Cory Bush, AOC, Bernie, what, you know, he, he of course, talks about labor and, and the PRO Act and all that stuff, but even just being specific about these cases, I don't, I'm, is it too rosy to think that, like, just people pointing that out and would help in any way i mean it's a dream to think that bernie would run and like entertain anything like that but you know he he is a good uh i mean i guess he didn't he himself didn't say anything but you know there was all the talk about well you're a millionaire too and everyone was like well he wrote books you know it's not like he's uh raking in uh Nancy Pelosi money and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult conversation. And I, I see it pops off on Twitter every now and again. There'll be some discourse about how somebody paid $80 for shoes and half the internet thinks yeah. that that is a cheap shoe and the other half of the internet thinks that's an unconscionable amount of money to spend on a pair of shoes. Right. And it's a conversation that manages to be alienating to 100% of people. <laughs> um, you <laughs> yeah, know, and, it, and I, I do... Yeah, I, I do think that there is a big difference between, uh, you know, earning money through selling a book and earning money through, you know, through kind of directly exploiting people's labor. And people will say that there's exploitation in the publishing industry, which is absolutely true. But I think that there are degrees in that matters. Um, you know, there's the, the, oh, but you have an iPhone. How can you be a socialist meme? of it all where we're all trying to live under capitalism so i think that some of this stuff is unfair but what i think is really clear is when you get into like extreme amounts of money i don't have any moral ambiguity about saying that it's unethical for you know these tech billionaires to have as much money as they do elon musk jeffrey bezos and the like right um 
you know, when you look at the difference in magnitude between a million and a billion dollars, what is the thing? Let me Google it real quick. Um, million versus billion distance to moon. You know that 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 yeah, yeah. says um, a stack of one trillion one dollar bills would reach to the moon and back for t- well, that's not the one I'm thinking of. But you know what I mean. It's like yeah. much bigger scale than we understand it to be. Yeah. When you think about it in physical terms. Okay, here we go, here we go. The height of a stack of one hundred one dollar bills is less than half an inch. The height of a stack of a thousand one dollar bills is four point three inches. Okay. Thousand dollars is four inches. The height of a million dollar bills is three hundred and fifty eight feet. So a thirty to thirty five story building. That's a million dollars is a thirty five story building. Wow. A hundred million dollars is six point seven miles. A billion dollars is sixty seven point nine miles, which gets you almost out of the atmosphere. And a hundred billion dollars is past the International Space Station. <laughs> I want to ride that stack of ones, baby. <laughs> right. And one trillion gets you a quarter of the way to the moon. Wow. So, like, these are, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, thousands of dollars is a lot of money to a lot of people. And we're talking inches off the ground versus a quarter of the way to the moon. And so I have no problem talking about these guys who now have, like, a hundred billion dollars now. Is that right? You know, that's not so, man. Like, there's just no reason you could, you know, we have six people who own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the population. I mean, there's there's literally nothing you couldn't buy, including entire democracies. And that's an, an, an unstable amount of money for any one person to have, an amount of power for any one person to have. And in some cases, they doubled and tripled it just during the pandemic. Correct. Which so is a, like, yeah, yeah, it's... It should activate everyone's... I mean, we're all traumatized by this right. whole thing. Right. So. so with respect to Shama, like, I both think it's a deeply moving gesture. And also, in res- I kind of always want to resist. I don't linger on that point when she brings it up because I almost want to resist a conversation about right. what other people should be doing. I, maybe it's my own bourgeois sensibilities and maybe it's my own defensiveness. And you can drag me kings and queens and every other kind of indiscriminate royalty. I don't... You know, I, I, it could just be me being defensive, but it does feel a little weird to be having conversations about people who make, you know, is $1,000, $100,000 too much? Is $200,000 too much? When there's people who are, like, pissing away $100,000 donations. Yeah. You know what I mean? It feels a little like it's missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, I could see how it much... become whack-a-mole pretty quickly. Like, right. well, I live in New York and it's expensive, so right. I need more. Yeah. And that's how these conversations go. Inevitably, some person says, well, I make $400,000 a year and I'm struggling because this is how much childcare costs and my rent is this. And then everybody who makes $40,000 a year is understandably extremely irritated because they also live in New York and have kids. Right. And it's it's just, I don't think it's a particularly useful, solidaristic conversation. We can have that conversation once we handle the people with the billion dollars. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm totally open to it, and you can come for me and my, you know, student loan debt, negative wealth. <laughs> when we when we come for the ones with the billion dollars, I I, I submit to it. I promise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah. But thank you for calling in. Thank uh, you. I'm glad we're able to get you up here. Yep. Bye. Bye bye. Owen, hit me. What's on your mind this evening? Yes, ma'am. Can you hear me? I can loud and clear. Gotcha. Um, I wanted to stay on 
the same point of uh, money that you and Serene were talking about mm-hmm. and how money correlates with how we can hold politicians accountable and uh, I guess a lot of people's experiences with the DSA, um, mm. especially my experiences, which were uh, mostly negative. <laughs> Mm. Um, Tell me about it. Where but, where are you located? Do you want to talk about what chapter that was, or is that too much information? No, no pressure. Sure thing. Um, I I won't give out exactly because I believe the more and more I talk, the more uh, people will be able to tell where I am. But mm. uh, I'm mainly located in the south, in like the Georgia, Florida area. I was a part of two different DSA groups, and specifically when it came to my experiences in those groups when it came to money and things like that it seems like they were more interested in running a political campaign for somebody who's a part of the group or going to the park and having like general meetings about marx and to talk about marx or lenin and have a pizza party rather than donating that money to the actual communities that they were quote unquote a part of and i say quote unquote because most of the dsa people in the, both of the groups that I was a part of were actually college kids who moved there from outside of town and wanted to come there and basically, quote unquote, do something, which basically meant sat in the park and talk about Marx and Lynn all day rather than actually donating that money to their communities. And I bring up how that correlates with uh, politicians and also the DSA, because while I was watching the conversation with you and Shama, she talked about how much money that she donated from her own paycheck to contribute to actual like uh, programs or like mutual aid funds to actually support the people who voted for her. And at this time, after being no longer being a part of DSA and actually becoming very, uh, I guess, negative when it comes to like voting just in general, when I heard Shama say that, I was like, okay, now I would vote for her because uh, while you were having the mm. calling conversation with, I forgot the other two politicians who you were having uh, on the other day, uh, they were Holly basically Dulcimer running. and uh, Reverend Wendy yeah. Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I really wanted to. I didn't get a chance to, but I really wanted to ask them if they really expect people who are working nine to fives, like I used to, like at, at, while I was still working in that town that I was part of the DSA of. I was working 15 hours a day, like two jobs. I was living 10 feet away from train tracks and paid like $200 for rent. So I was very poor and I still had the time to like contribute to my time to DSA. And I I feel like if more politicians would say what they would be able to risk instead instead of like what they would not be able to risk, like money, for instance, like let's say if there's any politician at all who's running right now who calls themselves a progressive, I think they would get a lot of votes if they would say, hey, if I run and you give this money to my campaign, I will donate a majority of my political paycheck back to the people in a bunch of these different ways. Because I know uh, when it comes to money, a bunch of these politicians have basically people in their pockets, like pharmaceutical companies or other big companies telling them what to do. But when the people aren't in their pockets, and they have the least majority amount of power when they don't fear us like they fear those other companies, we have no control. So if there's a possibility that some politicians will maybe say like, hey, I'll contribute my money back to you just like you contribute back to me, then that would seem equal 
in some way. And I just I just want to know your thoughts about that since that had to do with what uh, Shama was talking about in the conversation you posted today. So I think one, that's extremely useful perspective. I mean, I, I think it's obviously true that as much as Shama's gesture moves me, I think it is probably going to be even more compelling to people who are at the income level that she's purposefully putting herself at to show solidarity and to make sure that she is not disconnected from the struggles of what it means to have an average worker's salary. I, I think that's an important point. I also am interested in what compelled you to commit your time to DSA, given that you had a lot more on the line in terms of the value of your time, your need to work, your own precarity, than a lot of the people who seem to be participating in your chapter. What, because, I mean, the critique of DSA is, you know, that it is a bunch of Oberlin students who want to sit around reading Marx. You know, it is what it is. It's better than what a lot of people Mm -hmm. are doing. So I don't mean that as, like, shade. But you obviously broke that mold. And I'm kind of curious to find out what it was that made you want to do it. What did you want to participate? Um, I guess, I don't know if this is going to give away where I was living in the South. But I lived in a, a... a town that was basically run by the college that was in the town and a good majority 30 to 40 percent of the business owners in the town were former or current students of that college mm-hmm. and uh i i was one of those like i guess quote-unquote ginger fires that came to that town to go to school and then after that I realized that most people who graduate from that college usually don't make it out and end up just staying in town and sort of gentrifying the area. So when I found out that I was basically part or contributing to the actual downfall of the community that I was a part of, I decided to actually try to re-contribute to the community. I tried to uh, go to homeless shelters. and This is all during COVID because uh, 2020 was like crazy and I just decided to I guess, take part because there were a bunch of people in my life who were, I don't talk to anymore, who called black people cowards if they weren't in the streets protesting and decided to go to work instead and a bunch of other crazy stuff. So I decided I had to do something. So I decided to start uh, contributing my time to homeless shelters and then also walking around to different like black owned businesses on like, you know, regular MLK Street and just talking to people. And when I found out that like, I was a part of DSA and they basically could not talk to poor black people. It kind of like irked me because uh, like, I guess they, they say they want to, I guess, change the community, but. It... Hey, Owen, where'd you go? I was really picking up what you were putting down. They want to change the community, but what you cut out. Owen, does anyone, does everyone else hear Owen but me, or, or are we all cut off from Owen? Okay, Owen, I'm, I'm going to move on, but please do call back because. They would rather like. Oh, oh, there you are. Okay. Sorry, Owen, you cut out. So you said they want, they say they want to change the community, but and then you cut out. Oh, Owen, did you go away again? I don't know what's going on there, guys. Owen, Owen, go ahead and hang up and call back. 
I'm going to move on to David, but don't forget where you were, what you were saying, because I think you were on the verge of like a really important point, And I want to, I want to close that loop. I don't want the dead air time. So I'm going to move on to David, but please do get back in line and I'm going to pull you up again. Okay, David, unmute yourself and let us know what's on, what's on your mind tonight. Oh, hey, Bree. Uh, can you hear me? I can. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, yeah. Um, so first of all, I just wanted to quickly say um, there's, there's been a lot of people very despondent about electoral politics, and I would consider myself one of those, frankly. Mm. But um, it, it's it's mostly the problem is is that uh, things don't end at electoral politics. There's this idea that we vote and then that's kind of it, and most people just like go back home. But you got to keep following people around and pressuring them publicly, and just you know doing all the same kind of stuff you would do during the election, but for anything that you want. Um, so it goes hand in hand with electoral politics. Mm-hmm. You just can't stop <laughs> once the election is over. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, that is true. But I also am a little reluctant to put the entire onus on voters because what happened, for example, in 2008, you had a lot of people who were very willing to keep participating. But if the, the, the party that organized and has been kind of running the participation for the entire campaign and electoral season, then says, actually, no, we're over, go home and disbands the organizing network themselves. You're basically asking all of these people who had no connection to each other. They don't have the email list. They don't have any way to get in touch with each other, each other was all through the Obama campaign now being told, well, you know, don't stop organizing when they're really kind of cast the wolves, you know, starting from scratch. And also they had a deep trust in the candidate that he knew what was best and that they, he really didn't need their help anymore. They didn't need them to be, them to be organized anymore. That's all to say that I do think that there is some requirement For there to be an independent infrastructure outside of the electoral process, even if you think the electoralism should be a part of it, because if it's completely within the electoral uh, process, then there's every incentive for at least the Democratic Party structure to disable it the way that, you know, Obama and arguably even Bernie did when the electoral needs are set, because then suddenly you become a threat. You are yeah. something that can hold you accountable. And once you're elected, you don't want that anymore, ostensibly. Yes. Um, which I, I didn't mean to put that on the voters mm-hmm. specifically, because that is the fault of our current leadership system, the, mm-hmm. the parties and the way they've consolidated power um, around corporations uh, and moneyed interests. But, um, I, you know, really, I, I think we're kind of blurring the line or not blurring the lines, but we're kind of reaching a point here where electoral politics and um, just active demonstration kind of have to be the same thing. Like we're all going to have, not all of us, but there has to be like consistent pressure on these guys. That's not just the electoral system, but people being like really pissed off. Like the yellow, the yellow vest, you know, um, protests in France, something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, I mean, because, Otherwise, there's no real incentive to change the stagnation that we have right now that benefits the current, the people who are currently in the leadership if nothing's really getting done. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree, David. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, I actually uh, was uh, calling in because uh, I wanted to talk to you about video games. Um, okay. What do you want to talk yeah. about video games? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, it was either like this past week or the week beforehand, but um, in California, one of the state prosecutors for uh, Department of Fair, uh, it, it, it's, it's Employment and Housing, I forget the acronym, but they, it's, it's the Department to Protect uh, Fair Employ- Employment and Housing in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the uh, um, prosecutors uh, resigned and in her resignation letter um, wrote that she was doing it because the prosecutor that was investigating Activision Blizzard, um, which is a major games publisher, um, was they, that she was interfered with and, and fired um, by the governor, by, by Gavin Newsom's office. Wait, okay, um, I'm sorry. The, so this person who worked for this housing org was fired, was also a, a game, a what? Sorry, okay. So, so here's the connection. It, it's, it's the government fair employment um, agency uh-huh. for California. So it's the actual government agency. Um, they were investigating Activision Blizzard okay. um, over really horrific sexual harassment, sexual assault, you know, allegations that were, well, that that are very systemic within their company. Mm. Um, Okay. This isn't one of those things where it's like the recruit, all the white nationalists are recruiting kids through the chats in the games. This is at the company. Yeah. This is the actual company culture. Like they have things where like the male employees will troll around like the cubicles, you know, for sex from the female employees. They have a lot of you know, allegations of the male employees, you know, dumping their work off on the female employees and taking credit for it. It's a frat boy culture. That's, that's what the problem is. Um, but uh, they were getting investigated for all these, like, you know, horrible things that they've done. Um, and the governor's office stepped in and fired the uh, prosecutor in charge of that investigation. Um, then another prosecutor resigned, um, you know, in protest of that. Uh, and basically the, the whole allegation is, is that Gavin Newsom is stepping in to protect um, Activision and Bobby Kotick, who's the head of Activision right now. And does he have a relationship with Bobby Kotick? Why, why is he trying to protect him, allegedly? Um, I don't know that they have a specific relationship, but Activision has a huge presence in California. It's a major corporation. Um, they're, they're like one of the biggest, uh, games manufacturers. They make Call of Duty and they own World of Warcraft and like the guys that make Candy Crush. So they have like some really, really big money makers and they're a huge company. So I, you know, frankly, it's more likely to me that it's just big business that he wants to suck up to. Um, right. I mean, but the company's not necessarily like gonna go away. Um, just because the people who are doing sexual harassment or because they get like a sexual harassment policy and a, some HR compliance happens, right? This isn't exactly like, well, you kick them out of town. That's sort of what the employees were trying to do, frankly, is really push the leadership out because it is the totality of the leadership at Activision. Mm-hmm. It's not just a few people. Um, <laughs> it goes all the way up to Bobby Kotick. Um, very directly, um, and they have like documentation 
showing all these things. Mm-hmm. And it's something that anybody who's worked in the game industry has known for years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, game, the games industry is incredibly abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and the workers are churned through. Uh, they often have very, like, no job protection. Most mm-hmm. people are hired as contractors, and they're just on board for, you know, a year, year and a half, two years to finish a project. And then they're jettisoned. Um, they're also required to work insane crunch time, which, you know, you'll have uh, employers demanding 60, 80, 100 hour work weeks in the uh, six to nine months before a game releases mm. um, to, to get it finished. It's all the same very exploitative stuff that you'd see in film, um, mm. but with um, programmers primarily. Interesting. Well, if the punchline is Gavin Newsom sucks, you know, that seems yeah. corroborated at this point. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wanted to highlight with all of this that um, there's going to be a lot of white collar industries that need union protection, too. Mm-hmm. There's going to there's going to need to be people coming forward. I mean, 10 years ago, you we had um, the EA spouses um, movement, which was um Electronic Arts is another big game publisher, and a lot of spouses of the workers had come forward talking about horrible abusive practices and got a bunch of stuff changed. Um, So it it does require um, effort, and frankly, these these white-collar workers actually have a bit more pressure than some of the other industries because they're slightly less interchangeable, although that is not really the case anymore with programs especially so that's yeah been flooded um yeah no that's that's a good point i appreciate you raising that and i'll keep an eye out for that story i hadn't seen it but thank you for i think that's it's a good point that there are plenty of white collar industries that can use this kind of work i know we did talk about and if it was on a podcast or Colin recently my feelings that it seems anathema to me to be organizing in the kind of spaces i used to occupy as an attorney but to your point plenty of white collar people certainly need that that, that yeah kind of work so Thank you for that, David. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. Sylvester, what's on your mind this evening, my friend? Why are you saying like I'm about to say something crazy? Well, (laughs) Sylvester. (laughs) You know, I don't come come like, I don't come hot like that. You know, we keep everything. You you better. Everyone's looking forward to you because they believe you're going to come hot like that. Don't let the, don't let the people down, Sylvester. (laughs) You know, it's actually funny. I was actually going to use, use at least part of the time to actually pass the pressure on to some other people. Someone Mm -hmm. said something yesterday, not yesterday, the last time we was on here. And I was just like, you know what? They write. They said they said something along the lines of like certain people. I put myself up there. <laughs> will call in like damn near right as soon as you open the room up, mm-hmm. and like once them la- you know the first couple people set up, it's like is you might as well forget about it if you're at the end of the line, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny too because sometimes I'm like I don't want to seem too thirsty, so if I see nobody has like clicked in to call in yet, I'll let a couple go, and I'm like okay, five six people, let me go ahead and boom. So I was thinking maybe you like go reverse order sometime instead of like the first couple people that's on you go towards the end because I'm looking up there's like an Amanda Laura and a Rebecca damn near back to back to back get some more gender parity in the well, let me let me I've hopped around before I feel a little guilty about it sometimes because I feel like there should be a mix of you know if you 
were timely and did try to get in the front, especially like today, there were some people who I didn't, I don't usually see that much before. There's some familiar faces like Andy, but you know, Owen is not someone I remember. Speaking of which, I'm going to bring you back, Owen. I see you back there. Um, but I've hopped around in the past and yeah, let's hop around. Let's hop around yeah. a little bit today. Yeah. You know, cause sometimes I wish the teacher, excited. the teachers would re- reward the late students sometime. Cause maybe <laughs> if I got acknowledged, I might show up on time, you know, <laughs> but if you always just paying attention to who show up early, then you know, that was motivation I got. Fair, um, sorry, fair, that. fair enough, Sylvester. Does that mean you want me to move on and bring Owen back up from the end to finish his point he was making about the black people in DSA? Yeah, willingness to organize black folks. Go ahead. I like what Owen was talking. Go ahead. Bring okay. on. All right. Thank you, Sylvester. Way to, way to take one for the team. <laughs> All right, Owen. So you were about to tell us about how the dear DSA branch didn't seem willing to organize black people. Can you unmute yourself and finish that thought? Owen, can you press unmute? The people want to hear from you. Come on, Owen. I believe in you. Owen? Hello? Ah, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for right. uh, letting me back up, Bruce. Yeah, let's let's get you in here. Make your point and before the internet gods cut you off again. Yeah, um, basically my point was uh, at this point, I'm less interested in contributing to political campaigns and I'm more interested No, in... no, no. I, we want to hear you talk oh. about the DSA organizing black people. You were about to make a very specific point. You know, I, God bless you. I, I hear you not wanting to organize, support electoralism. Everyone feels that way. We all get it. No one likes electoralism. We want to hear you talk about whatever you were going to say about your chapter's reluctance to organize poor black people, working class black people, whatever it is we were about to say. Yeah. Um, so, I, of course, I was one of the two black people who were in that specific DSA. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them quit and then I stayed and then I struggled before I quit which usually happens anytime I'm at the job and the only reason why I was even in the DSA or I was introduced to it was uh, after a bunch of like uh, no offense to anybody but a bunch of white people that I knew were like you're not protesting you're on the street you're a coward and after some, that was right after some people got some guns put in their faces. Um, but after that, I got involved because I missed out on a bunch of like protests that took place in town. And then I went and made a sign that said like uh, demand hazard pay and demand some other stuff that matters, but I can't remember now. And I just went walking down the main street where everybody, all the workers work. And I was just repeating it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And uh, some DSA people came up to me and they were like, hey, we would like you in the DSA. And of course, when I got there, I was at first the only black person there and I brought the other black person with me. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like uh, their first initial idea to connect with the quote unquote poor blacks in the area was to, uh, this is what they said, go in the hood with granola bars and start talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. You know what? You just made me choke on my own saliva, Owen. What are you doing to me? I hey, inhale like just you the right now. You know how it is. <coughs> Owen, you're about to have me 
asphyxiate alone mm-hmm. in my own apartment and they're going to find me like a week from now when the smell starts wafting out into the hallway because you had me laughing so hard. I'm just fully choking on fully the nothing that is in my mouth right now. <laughs> Not granola mm-hmm. bars, Owen. Yeah. And I guess like how I I kept saying was uh, at that time I was like, hey guys, uh, I'm not going to become a dues-paying member because I pay taxes and my streets are still broken. So I'm not going to give money to an organization that's not giving money directly back to the community mm. that I'm living in. Mm. And they were like, that's the well, thing about mutual aid. It's like, it's not just the benefit of obviously directly giving money to people. It's that level of trust that comes you know, mm-hmm. the kind of I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. And that's what I think the lesson that should have been learned from a lot of those 60s era orgs. You know, my mother was a, one of those uh, in those like Black Panther community group and lunch programs and all of that stuff. And she talks about how formative it was and how despite whatever the media said about the Black Panthers, you know, she just had this personal experience with it. She felt the support and what it was giving back to her and my aunt. When you gonna bring your mama on the show? I, you talk about your mama all the time doing all this good stuff. <laughs> I want to hear from Brianna Joy Gray's mother about her experiences. That's what I, I try. I ask her like she was here. She is on a has a contract for work in DC and here and is here like every other week. And she was here, you know, just in town for the day last week. And we were sitting here next to my little podcast setup, and I was like, "Mom, you know, the people are clamoring to hear you on the show." But she gets all weird and clammed up, and I'm I'm working on her. I, she came on the Bernie podcast once. Okay, okay. And so I know I can get her on. I just gotta I just gotta get her in the right situation because you know sometimes she acts, she gets all weird when she knows she's being recorded. But I think she'd be good on calling. So I'll I'll pass on that she's wanted. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the last point I just wanted to bring up, uh, connected with money, I just saw recently uh, Chris Malls again mm-hmm. on the Daily Show talking about his demands he's trying to make with the rest of the ALU to Amazon. And he was saying he's about to demand some equal shares, mm-hmm. Amazon shares for employees. Mm-hmm. And I, I made that comment on uh, your last Chris Smalls video, and there were people under it saying, like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't get into greed when it comes to money. And I just thinking as a person who's been working like a bunch of uh, quote unquote essential worker jobs mm-hmm. for like half my life, the employees are the business. Mm-hmm. We are the ones who make the business work. And without us, there would be no business. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted your thoughts on that and whether or not most unions that are basically made up of workers and not by any outside organizations should start, should start demanding shares of like the company that they work at and i'll uh take that as i leave and thank you for having me thank you owen look the whole the whole point <clears throat> the whole ball game was supposed to be worker-owned businesses that was you know the linchpin in some ways of bernie's entire labor policy and that continues to be the goal i think it's a lot easier for people to conceptualize the idea of worker-owned businesses is something that I lean on when I'm trying to have these introductory conversations with people who are skittish about democratic socialism, who don't know what any of this is. I frame it in those terms. I say exactly what you just said, that the workers all are the business. You remember how everyone reacted to um, Obama's, like, you didn't make this, you know, ele- you know gaffe in, in 2012? I mean, people, I think, really respond to the idea that 
workers make things. Workers make the business. It's really hard to argue against that. Workers have profits. And it's a little hop, skip, and a jump from that to like all profit is wage stuff. You know what I mean? But you don't have to get into that. Just, you know, workers work hard. Productivity is up. It's higher than it's been basically ever. It's way higher than it was in the 1950s when workers got a much bigger share of the profits and CEOs got a much smaller share of the profits. And we should return to those ratios. A hundred percent. And one other point I'll make is that, you know, what you're saying reminds me of when I had uh, Tesla and Figaro on the podcast last fall. She is a political commentator. She was often on BNC News, RIP. Um, and you'll see her around giving political commentary. She is brought on Fox from time to time to be a progressive voice. You know, and she talks about how a different kind of messaging is necessary for black people. And I think that some of the things that the left kind of turns his nose up at and poo-poos as like profit and greed and money and all this stuff. When you're dealing with people who are in le- legitimate precarity of all races, you can't act like money doesn't matter. It's alienating. It's crazy. You sound insane. Like people have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They need money. <laughs> like you can't, you can't come to someone who's facing eviction and be like, money doesn't matter. You gotta, you gotta stim the bleeding first and triage the situation before you can be having kind of highfalutin conversations about how we want to structure the world. And that's not because people like can't wrap their minds around it or anything like that. It's because they're, they're in, they're in a crisis, you know? And so I, I do think that sometimes there is not that level of exigency in how some orgs meet these communities and meet the moment, regardless of the racial background. But in particular, I think that there's a lot of mythology around, you know, bootstrapping and kind of social conservatism in the black community that needs to be understood before people start to try to come and talk to us. I was in the airport. I actually surreptitiously took a picture of the back of this guy's sweater, but I was in the back uh, in the airport on the way back from Rhode Island last weekend. I was walking behind this guy, this black guy who had a sweatshirt on that said black capitalist. And I found myself wondering, I wonder how much capital this guy has, you know, you got people out here with, you know, a thousand dollars in the bank account talking about him, a black capitalist. I don't know anything about this guy. Maybe he's actually like a millionaire. I don't know. But you know, that's, that's a certain kind of mindset. The Jay-Z, what's better than one millionaire too, especially if he's blacker than you, like all of this, this is like a thing you got to deal with. And I'm not entirely sure all of these organizations are equipped to do so. So thank you Owen for calling in and giving us a little, uh, Perspective there. Let's hop around per Sylvester's suggestion and bring Amanda up. Amanda, what's on your mind? Unmute yourself and uh, fill us in. <clears throat> the unmute button is in the bottom right-hand corner, Amanda. Sorry. I. Good morning. Good afternoon. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. You got <laughs> I was trying to get to it because you skipped around. I wasn't expecting to be next. Yeah, no worries. Right. I understand. Hi. <laughs> nice to meet um, you, Amanda. It's a very much a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the two-way conversations that you have in, in call-in after you have your podcast. It's... Um, one step closer to actually being in person with people and having conversations mm. with each other, which we need to do. Cause so um, that's related to one point I wanted to make, which is I, I really appreciate the fact that, that you, um, you talk about practical actions people can take and, and you, when you're interviewing elected officials, you try to 
suss out from them what they think that they can be doing in the party better when you're talking about somebody in in party politics. I just really appreciate how you... So much of the way that you look at the world resonates with me, and I very much appreciate that you, when you're learning something new, you're really sharing with us how you're doing that. I think that's um, helpful for a lot of us who really do want to have something to do, you know, at this point. So, well, you know, saying that. Act, act, the, all of those things are important. And the other thing is... I wanted to say about electoral politics is that where electoral politics matters is at the local level where essentially it's nonpartisan or supposed to be. And media, because of consolidation and the nationwide you know, nature of it all, doesn't tend to cover local races. And local newsrooms, even at newspapers, are so stretched thin that I mean, the only politics I ever see is Washington politics, which dated on a day-to-day basis, because I don't benefit from the giant tax cuts they give the rich people, right? I'm bar- I barely can have any say at the national level. So, but that's, that's what the media focuses on. So everybody looks at that and forgets. It's really important who the district attorney is in your county or who the or who who your local city council people are and what their positions are and how accessible they are. I appreciate you interviewing Shwarma from um, Seattle City Council because it's such it's so refreshing to hear it from a different angle. Mm. You know how how local government Mm. can be effective. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for um, letting me know, you know, bad, bad, bad feedback tends to stick in the craw a lot um, more easily than, than good stuff. So I really do appreciate your support. And thank you for listening, Amanda. Um, I just had one quick thing on call-in. So one of the things I really appreciate is the way that you navigate conversations with people that you disagree with to get to a point where even if you end up disagreeing, it, it, it actually is a good conversation. So I was using the call-in app to do the clips, mm-hmm. but I can only do a two-minute clip. And to get the full context of how you handle some of these difficult conversations, which mm-hmm. I think are excellent examples of how we could have difficult conversations, mm-hmm. I, can, I can only make a clip of two minutes. Oh, interesting. Well, they probably do that because the maximum. I'm sure. Right. Post to social media is two minutes. I that's not true for me. I pay for the. I don't know if everyone can do it. If it's like a blue check thing, I'm sorry, but you can pay okay like two dollars a month or something for Twitter Plus, so I can post longer videos now. So I okay. I, maybe I'll so- raise that with the call in tech people and ask them if if you can make the ability to do longer clicks because some clips because some of us can post longer clips. Yeah, I I just appreciate that because again, I, I you give so many times excellent examples of how to have a difficult conversation without getting your, you know, off of the rock, off of the off your rocker, or you know, yelling at people. You know, it's nice. <laughs> well, thank you, Amanda. I'll, I'll definitely follow up on this, that, and I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Uh, let's switch it up and go back to the front and talk to Andrew, and then I'll keep. Around, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight, Andrew. Well, Bree, at the 420. 
we gotta bring the good vibes and everything with that and make it be a whole first i want to give a major round of applause to how courtesy first the good sir of sylvester was Zach, you were great and owen i gotta tell you owen for you to be dsa and black with it man as understanding that all the way and the difficulties that you face, sir. And we're going to get into that all the way in a second, as well as my good guy, Case. Case being on here. Oh, my goodness. That's the first I've heard Case voice, even though we have been Twitter friends for about three years now and both of us having to get out of Twitter jail because I didn't even know he was in Twitter jail. So God bless that Case was on there in a major way with this. As Owen was mentioning first, Bree, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole thing that he had to deal with with his DSA, all I can do is play this whole sound. Is this. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Owen, you got to tell us which DSA this is. And if it's here in Brooklyn, I'm going to be really upset if it's North Brooklyn and having to talk to some people. So hopefully it wasn't the case in North Brooklyn with that. As well... We have to say for those at um in uh in in Turner Media or at least in Warner Media or whatnot, for those with CNN Plus and how they was hyping that nonsense up for so long, we have to give them the full prices right here at the right thing. <laughs> I mean, the the how can you even run a network and then turn around and scrap the idea? that she were pubbing less than one month. Like, who does that? Only centrist media can, but CNN, you just take the cake even more in more embarrassing fashion with that. Well, we have to see if CNN plus the quick divide. It's so hard <laughs> to oh, no. we, we glad that it's gone. We didn't want to see Don Lemon. And, and, and we, we didn't want to see that again. Andrew, oh my well, God! Well, 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 let me get to the serious point, then, Bri. I just wanted to make sure people just had a good laugh in here, <laughs> as all of us. But you know, I was gonna be real quick with this, you know, because Owen was mentioning, and this is a thing that, particularly seeing maybe Bernie with this, and I'm gonna talk to Faz tomorrow, actually, or probably because we were supposed to talk today, but scheduling conflicts got there, and I was gonna interview uh, Faz Shakir about this mm. in terms of things, but. The key really, whether, you know, it's Bernie primary, Biden, which needs, at the very least, Biden primary needs to happen. Yes, we got to deal with midterms and stuff and everything, but the primary needs to happen to me for the deal for Bernie getting out the race early that he did after the Wisconsin primary, of course. But at the very least, the thing, only thing he needs to add, just add the reparations platform to the whole campaign with that and just being able just to have the full level of activity towards Black South with that in terms of the activity there. So that can be covered and how the centrists won't be able to use that nonsense against us, particularly with how Obama wanted to coalesce everyone around there and Amy Klobuchar spilling the beans with how she was going to be Biden's VP and she spilled the beans out on that in true Amy Klobuchar gaff fashion. And then, obviously, they couldn't go along with that when everything was happening with George Floyd. Mm-hmm. So he just has to really add reparation platform and anyone that wants to run left, whether it be Rashida Tlaib, 
whether Nina Turner, if things don't go well with this with Chantel Brown, or even if she does win, and hopefully she does, but adding that reparations platform off of Sandy Darity's plan, just, just copy Sandy Darity's plan right there and add on to everything else there. And that right there is something that centrists certainly do not, and centrist appeasers in the party, that's who I would call in terms of the liberals now. Now, Andrew, I don't want to be cynical, but my feeling is that if Bernie were to do that, there would be plenty of centrists who would say Bernie is unelectable because he has a reparation, he has reparations on his platform. But you they see would how, flip it on him. It doesn't matter. See, they're going to argue against him regardless. It can't well, be about what centrists are going to say, you know? Well, well they're going to do that, but see, that's the, that's the key, though is to make sure, especially for black voting law, particularly the older black voting law, because he already has our demographic for the last two elections with that. But to really get to deal with that, with the black older block, with all of still the misinformation and have truth that they get from centrist media, corporate media, uh, people for those wondering where I want that term with, but mm-hmm. how they still have to deal with that and not be fully vested in the internet age it, they always still use that card to be like, well, Bernie, he's not showing full solidarity with black people blah, 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 by not but, having a reparations Andrew, let plan. Me, let me ask you this. I mean, mm-hmm. I say this as someone who fully supports reparations, but I don't feel like in 2020 that was weaponized against Bernie. That was definitely a 2016 issue because Todd Nisi Coates made it one. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's one that the Democratic Party. I mean, and let me also say in the beginning of 2019, Everybody, there were a bunch of people before Bernie announced who came out and started talking about reparations as though they were going to wind up for that for that again. But then when it became clear that nobody had an actual reparations plan, it all kind of petered away, and nobody said anything a- about it probably after April of 2019. It, so I, I, yeah. I, I am curious whether it would matter to older black voters, as you say, when so many black voters in general, but especially older ones, are so conservative and are really looking for electability. You know, the same way that black voters didn't get behind Barack Obama until he won, you know, what was in New Hampshire. I, I almost am afraid that black voters will think almost less of a candidate and think they're unserious until they are demonstrated that they can win over white votes. Like that seems to be the number one thing black voters are looking for, a candidate that can win and beat Democrats with white voters. Well, I'm sorry, beat Republicans. Reparations across the board is popular with young black voters, with older black voters, definitely, in regards to this, where it's, quote unquote, more than electability, it's more familiarity still. And still, at the very least, that was still very powerful with Biden being Obama's VP. Right, but that's not reparations, though. Biden being well, Obama's VP is not reparations. Well, so no, 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 no. What, what, what I'm saying is that the electability for them to choose, at least in South Carolina, Biden over Bernie was more just he was Obama's VP. That was the real reason more than anything else was the fact that he was Obama's VP and with centrist media making sure to drown as much coverage away from Bernie after winning Nevada the way he did. I mean, if you, I don't know if you remember, but when ABC's This Week were previewing South Carolina, they didn't even want to talk about Bernie blowing, having the Nevada blowout win, of course. They went and made sure their whole segment that they did to preview South Carolina, it didn't even mention Bernie at all. So the major wave in regards to trying to give all the coverage to Bloomberg and to try to make sure in terms of obviously the tickets to the the, to the debate and making sure it was expensive so it could just be basically a whole bunch of rich people booing both Bernie and Elizabeth Warren whenever they got at Bloomberg again 
for being his king, my awful rich self. That was something where that was still the momentum to try to make sure that they could give Biden as much positive coverage and try to limit yeah. any. And, Andrew, I'm totally with weapons. you, but I'm just I'm just trying to land this plan about reparations. Mm-hmm. Separate and apart from a conversation about the validity or worth of advocating for reparations, which Mm -hmm. I support, I don't know that I buy the argument that it is going to be what's dispositive in terms of a candidate like Bernie winning. I don't think a Bernie that supported reparations does any differently in South Carolina in 2020 than one who didn't. Well, well, I think it's just in terms of just solidifying the full narrative for having a policy that is fully for black Americans as, as the rest of his policy base is clearly with that as one element, not as the only element, but just one strong element as an example of that where you just couldn't attack him from that from a right perspective. You couldn't use that as a factual culture to try to attack him. No other candidate could. And it just just takes away that narrative more from a broad standpoint of them trying to say, well, Bernie's still all about class more than race. And that's the thing, that's the key element to so like, but, 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 but the point I'm making, Andrew, is that while I know that that was a very active conversation happening online, and it was a very, very active conversation in 2016, I, I just, I'm not convinced that South Carolina voters didn't like Bernie because he cared, this, this idea that he cared about class more than race. I think per polls, 60% of South Carolina voters chose Joe Biden because they trusted and had confidence in, in new Jim Clyburn and Jim Clyburn told well, them to vote for them. And they took Jim Clyburn's endorsement into consideration. Well, it, but, and that's the key right there because the Clyburn situation, but also he was Obama's VP and that was key with that. If he wasn't Obama's VP and had that level of just familiarity that Joe Biden is like, no matter how much, Joe Biden annoys a lot of us. In no, and, and I don't disagree with that, Andrew, but I, I'm not, I don't know that I understand what that has to do with reparations. Well, well, that's what I'm trying to explain, though, Brianna, is the fact that that angle didn't have voters be excited about that. Where they couldn't say, well, Biden, you don't have a reparations plan, but Bernie has a concrete reparations plan. And that could be a thing that sways voters to say, you know what, Biden, you're not really being aggressive towards solving the problems the collateral problems of this country. You're trying to put band-aids on this. Bernie is really trying to solve the fundamental problems across the board, whether it be reparations, whether it be canceling student debt, whether making sure we have Medicare for all, having a comprehensive thing across the board and seeing that be an element towards that and getting them to be more excited and say, you know what? We need to have a primary of a sitting president for the first time with this and go with Bernie with this over Biden. Having that excitement towards his platform by having everything locked down and nailed down his platform would lead to having that excitement because you need that excitement in order to knock off an incumbent president. It, it's really a historical thing to do it. You really need to have every corner covered, every eye, you know, eye lined up and every, every, every eye dotted and every C crossed. You have to have it across the board with the policy platform with it where you just can't just have the same thing that you did in 2020 or even 2016 with it. And, and that's something that he's taking note of that because one thing as we know with Bernie is that Bernie is so aware of things and cognizant of things and always saying to himself, what is something I could do more or do better just to keep on growing? And that's something that's an element that anyone from any walk of life, whether myself, yourself, anyone listening could always take that element instead of just saying to himself, you know what? I'm going to keep the same thing and just 
is going to prove me effective in the end. It's keeping on adding towards your strengths or whatnot and limiting any weaknesses that could be perceived as that is a thing that why it would be one of the elements that could really help them have that galvanizing angle. Not just for him, for anyone else that's really from a left standpoint that can be able to say to have that solid platform and say to themselves that I'm covering all angles of full progressive left in America that can then galvanize even those who deem themselves centrist voters but say, hey, I want Medicare for all. I want all right, Andrew. All right. That's that. You made your case. And let's get some other people in the chat. There you go. See what they, <laughs> what they have to say. Thank you for no calling doubt. in, Andrew. And thank you for no entertaining us all with your <laughs> All right, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, Adam, feel free to weigh in on anything Andrew said or uh, go ahead and get to whatever it was that you had on your mind. Yeah. To the line. Hey, how are you doing, Bree? I'm doing all right, Adam. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, this is the first time I've uh, been able to call in, but I wanted to... Uh, I thought so. I thought your avatar looked unfamiliar. That's why I clicked on it. Yeah, I've been wanting to join uh, your call-ins for uh, many months now, but uh, every time you do one, I'm either working or in class. Oh, well, I'm glad you had a free Thursday evening to chat with us. What's on your mind today? Um, I kind of want to talk about um, Bernie Sanders and the whole talk about um, him running again. Okie doke. What do you think uh, about it all? Uh, basically, like, regardless of what I could say about my issues with Bernie endorsing Biden or Hillary, uh, the reality is that I don't feel like he did everything he could have done to win the primary in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know uh, he treated Biden with kid gloves, uh, calling him his good friend. Um, that's pretty well known. And when he did criticize Biden, it was very light and he let Biden slide on many of his faults. Um, that goes without saying, but I don't understand why Bernie didn't even make a simple, uh, even make simple decisions that would have, uh, increased his momentum in my opinion. For example, uh, after the South Carolina primary, we all remember what happened with Obama and the DNC, uh, convincing all of the establishment candidates to drop out and endorse, uh, Biden before Super Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Um, I and many others could uh, probably feel the momentum Biden was gaining in that moment, especially with all the free advertising and flaunting coverage his campaign was getting from the mainstream media. Um, to this day, I don't know why Bernie in that moment didn't drop everything and announce Nina Turner as his vice president during the rally he was holding at the same time Biden was holding his rally with Buttigieg and the rest of the clowns. Um, it would have forced the media to break that story and eru- interrupted the frenzy going on with Biden's manufactured momentum. Who knows how Super Tuesday could have gone if he did that. And then after Super Tuesday, he hardly even ramped it up on Biden. I feel like he gave up and then he drops out before the convention and immediately endorses Biden. It's almost like once we get uh, past the DNC meddling, Obama meddling, propaganda from the media, it's almost like Bernie threw the election. That's how I feel. For me, when we talk about someone running in 2024, I have reservations about anyone in the Democratic Party. But if anyone in the national spotlight were to run a different kind of national campaign than Bernie, I think it would probably be Nina Turner. If anyone was willing to be aggressive, it would be Nina. I understand she made similar mistakes as Bernie in the uh, way she ran her campaign in Ohio. Uh, But the district in Ohio seemed to have a large suburban and wealthy population. So I can understand why Nina would feel uh, she can't be about tearing down the system when she needs to chip away from that crowd. Not that I agree, uh, but I still think she should have ran as a fire breather. Uh, but I understand the reasoning. 
on the national stage, she might decide to go a different route, uh, but she might not. Regardless, I think there's a better chance she does than Bernie, obviously. And I think the left in America is insane if they think Bernie can win in 2024 after what they saw in 2016 and 2020. And I'm just curious about your take on that. <clears throat> um, I agree about all of the stuff with, you know, I think we've talked a great deal about how we all wish that Bernie had run a different kind of campaign and been more adversarial and all of those kinds of things. Um, the idea about announcing Nina Turner as a VP, I think the idea of announcing somebody, whomever it was planned to be as a VP, as a way to draw media attention might have been good. And I think generally speaking, people wanted some kind of a Hail Mary at the end. Um, if you'll recall, all the stuff about Tara Reid was percolating and we had instructions not to touch it. But you know, at the beginning of the campaign, um, all of the campaigns, remember, there were eight women who came out with allegations against Joe Biden. And at that time, Kamala Harris said that she believed the women. You know, it would have been interesting to see what happened if someone had lobbed a question simply about whether Kamala Harris still believed those women, still believed right. women who made accusations about Joe Biden. Maybe she didn't believe Tara Reid, but does this not raise the issue? from, you know, February or March of 2019, whenever it was, and those allegations were percolating around. A lot of people wanted him to draw more attention to a lot of the, excuse me, dishonest messaging that was happening around COVID as it broke out. Simone Sanders going on TV the day of the last debate after the debate saying the CDC had ruled that it was safe to vote when in fact that evening the CDC had said it wasn't safe to congregate in areas with 50 people or more, which you know, excludes a lot of voting locations and places, at least where I vote and where I used to vote in New York, you know, it was a line that went across around the corner and the, you know, on the, around basically the whole block in the West village is certainly more than 50 people in right. PS, whatever that where I used to vote, you know, down, down in the village. So, you know, people wanted him to push, but they think the opposite was true. I think that it is true that Bernie felt a sincere guilt around prolonging the election because of COVID. Certainly, Joe Biden's campaign was playing a game of chicken where they were accusing Bernie of being the one that was exposing people to risk by not dropping out, even though it was the Democratic Party that was doing things like trying to change the election dates and stuff in New York to try to make it more difficult for Bernie to gain momentum. Right, so, and I... Yeah. feel sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no, but I, I just feel i just feel like um you know who like whoever were to run if we were to decide to support a democratic candidate again um they need to be willing to play just as dirty as the establishment is playing you mm -hmm. know what i mean yep i yeah we're on the same page and i you know i i love bernie i have a i have a you know personal love for him even if i have my political frustrations and i don't i don't see that happening I'm curious if anybody saw all the stuff with them. I heard Fashakir, my brother told me Fashakir did the media rounds today, you know, Bernie's campaign manager. And I saw it just come up in my feed. Does anyone have any interest in listening to see what he had to say? Maybe it's about all of this Bernie stuff, midterms and all of that. Um, because my take on, I don't know if I said this here or if I was just talking to somebody at dinner just now and saying this to them. But uh, my take is that the reason that Faz is a, uh, I mean, like the, the the stuff is out there is because basically 
you know, some of the Bernie people, and I don't mean this nefariously, but some of the Bernie people are basically positioning themselves as advisors going into midterms and want to talk about, hey, remember how Bernie great, how great Bernie was? Like, here's how popular Bernie was. Here's the Bernie team. If you want to win, come and talk to us. And that's right. a little cynical, but um, anybody curious to see what Faz has to say? Um, yeah, I'm. I'd be down to hear what Faz has to say. Okay, let's see. I can't vouch for this, but here he is on PBS NewsHour. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Faz, I want to start with you and something that's been making a lot of headlines recently, which is where President Biden's approval ratings are. And I want to ask you what they mean for other candidates. But let's just take a look at some of those numbers to set the table here. When you look at some of these approval ratings among key groups since Biden took office to March 2022, we've seen some big drops. He's down 10 points overall. Among people of color, he's down 20 12 points among young Americans, Gen Z and millennials down 17 points, down 10 points with independence. Fizz, how does he get those numbers back up? And if he can't, how concerned should Democratic candidates be? Well, he's been dealt a, a series of tough cards, and I understand that the legislative agenda has been stalemated, often by corporate Democrats who've stood in his way. He's got some foreign policy crises to deal with. I think that the, the struggle for him is that uh, for some of these young young people who got involved in politics, they had some high ambitions of what could get done. And obviously some of those things are not going to happen, but they still want to see a president who's fighting for them, who's animating the fight, who's, who's wielding authority and power in as aggressive a way as possible. And I think that that's where sometimes... They I'm sorry, did he just say young people got to know that some of this ambitious stuff isn't going to get done, but we want a politician who is wielding power and basically just looking like he's trying? Am I being unfair in reading it that way? I'll back it up a little bit. And how concerned should Democrats... I understand that the legislative agenda has been stalemated, often by corporate Democrats who've stood in his way. He's got some foreign policy crises to deal with. I think that the, the struggle for him is that uh, for some of these young, young people who got involved in politics, they had some high ambitions of what could get done. And obviously some of those things are not going to happen. But they still want to see a president who's fighting for them, who's animating the fight, who's who's wielding authority and power in as aggressive a way as possible. And I think that that's where sometimes people are getting, I think, depressed that is the president kind of going to bat for the working class, taking on corporate power, taking on corporate Democrats, where, where they stand in his way. And I think this is that White House has often tried to, you know, they have a return to normalcy, a, a turn away from Trump, and they have not wanted to kind of engage and the heated battles that I think sometimes is required, not all the times, but sometimes you do have to pick a fight and you have to show that, you know, you really are animated by fighting for working class people. So, Glenn, obviously the White House says there's time before the midterms. We're going to show people we're doing the work, especially on the economy, which we know is a top issue for both Democrats and Republicans. If people see the work getting done, if things start to improve when it comes to cost of living and so on, and people feel better about the economy, is that a tougher argument for Republicans? Look, that's an unlike, very unlikely scenario. The last time the party in the White House, in control of the White House, didn't get spanked in a midterm election was 2002, and large, largely because of what had happened in, on September 11, 2001. Uh, it's too late for the White House uh, and the Democratic Party to turn things around for this election. Every four years going into the midterm, you hear the same thing. Oh, we've got time. We can turn it around. But it never gets turned around in time. It certainly, look, what happens in 2022 does not a predictor for 2024. There's plenty of elections. You know, Barack Obama's re-election in 2012 after getting spanked in 2010 uh, is 
you know, pretty strong evidence of that. Bill Clinton in 1996 after getting spanked in 1994. So, uh, look, independents are who decides elections, especially wave elections. And when there's a wave election, 2018, voting against Republicans and Donald Trump, independents went double digits for the Democratic Party. In 2014 uh, and 2010, they went double digits for the Republican Party. Right now, and I understand uh, what my uh, counterpart is saying about disaffected Democratic base, progressives, but the real problem the Democrats have is they've lost the trust of independent voters. And What do you guys make of that? Is it a real problem that they lost the trust of independent voters, or is it is it both? Because I think, I don't know, man, I think obviously it's true that independent swinging back and forth is what causes the overall swings, but I think that there is a different phenomenon happening here with the extremely low approval n- numbers that Biden's facing among core base groups, including, I think there's like a 20 point loss in, in youth voters. I'm going to bring you back up, Adam. I just muted you. I'm sorry, because you have a lot of feedback and it was um, popping a little while the video was playing. Unmute yourself and, and weigh in. Uh, no problem. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, the main takeaways that I took from what Faz said was like how he kind of implied that uh, Biden wasn't a corporate Democrat and um, you know, said that he's been getting a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, obstruction from corporate Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's um, I, I guess I'm not really that surprised by him um, taking that um, line of approach, especially since Bernie said he wouldn't run unless Biden did not run. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I get like I, I think I feel like it also kind of seems weird that like as soon as Biden is uh is um, not doing well with young voters that they trot Bernie out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe it's not they trotting Bernie out. Maybe it's his own decision. But, <laughs> but it just kind of feels it just kind of feels um, not a coincidence. You know what I mean? That's an interesting point that I hadn't really considered. Uh, Adam, am I on speaker? Um, you might be. I'm not using headphones or anything. Yeah, if you could take me off speaker and put you to, me to your ear, that's what's causing the feedback, or alternatively headphones, but at least if I'm not on speaker, so I don't hear myself double. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting point, the idea that Bernie even being back in the news cycle, even flirting with the idea of running, is to put young voters back in the mind of participating in the Democratic Party. I mean, it is interesting, I mean, the idea that he run is arguably not the same thing as aligning with Biden, but of course he has said, you know, to the point of some people in the chat that he's not running in this cycle. So it's not actually a threat to Biden and it could be just to wet our whistle and get excited again. If that's the case, that's deeply cynical and LOL Lord, but that's an interesting take, Adam. Thank you for calling in. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. Let's get some, let's get some other thoughts in here. Seth, what's on your mind? Unmute yourself and speak to us, my friend. Okay, Seth, going once, going twice. We're going to move on to Laura. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Hello. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I knew I would get really nervous. It's my first time calling in, but I love your program. Oops, (laughs) my wrong one. We love a first timer. No need to be nervous. 
yeah, so I really wish that I had um, heard more of the, the full um, interview that's, that's the topic of this call-in um, besides just the, uh, the excerpt, but I have... First and foremost, I just really want to express my gratitude. Um, at, yeah, you just just always being with the grassroots and carrying this movement, carrying so much of the movement. That's how that's how I see you. You're you're definitely you're in a big position of leadership when so many of us just don't have uh, a strong voice, a populist voice. Um, and I know there's a lot of people, but you're really a role model. And the fact that you are willing to so boldly call out Representative Jayapal, who Washington State uh, advocates have been calling out for some time, um, begging, calling out, all kinds of things. Um, it's oh, just... you're, a, you're a Red Beret, a Washington State Med for All person. Yes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Oh, Laura from the internet. <laughs> Laura, Laura from Twitter. Yeah. Hey, how are you? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Give us the skinny. What's going on in Washington state? <laughs> well, we will have um, petitions in hand really, really soon. Um, we have our ballot initiative number and uh, ballot summary and title. And our number is 1471. Um, we're just trying to get everything all lined up. Um, I can't speak enough volumes of credit. Another gratitude is for the the, the interview that you did um, with Andre Stackhouse some time back. I mm. saved that in my bookmarks and I share it all the time. And um, it's just a real treasure. Um, but Andre is our uh, the whole Washington campaign director. Um, so we are all set to go. We pro I, I expect that we'll have uh, petitions in hand um, maybe seven to ten days if I had to take a good guesstimate. Um, and That's then because last time I right out shortly after I interviewed Andre, wasn't it the case that the petition campaign basically was canceled, leaving that you weren't going to be able to do it by whatever the deadline is? It got I presume. It got rebooted, and this time you think you're going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. And, um, of course, Andre, like, he wasn't the campaign director before. He's very, very um, uh, organized and methodical. He was the lead um, organizer of Seattle March for Medicare for All, and I feel like um, he headed that up with um, – I mean, I, I actually did the outreach to ask him to do that and uh, because I knew that it, it couldn't be the whole Washington March for Medicare for All. It had to be the we're marching for Medicare for All and we have all these different coalitions that are coming in. Um, and Andre did such a fantastic job. But anyway, he's got this really amazing plan where, where he's recruiting signature captains. Um, and that's just basically like he breaks it down into a real numbers game. Um, and I guess he got a lot of inspiration just kind of how uh, like the Bernie victory captains, cause he was a Bernie victory captain. Um, and so, um, yeah. And he's on uh, the UW campus uh, with physicians for a national health students for a national um, health plan just uh, today or yesterday. So um, yeah, the, it's going really, really well. Um, what else was I going to say? Well, we have a really exciting event coming up that um, I, sh I don't know if I should announce that on here. Um, <laughs> I might just leave that for whatever, but let's just say that um, we're looking at doing something really, really exciting here um, in early June. And so I hope you keep your eyes peeled. Um, and, but what were you going to ask me? 
Oh, I wasn't going to ask you anything. I just wanted oh. to know what your question <laughs> was for, for this evening. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that, um, I, I hope that people will go and take a look at the, I, I don't know that I really have a question. Um, lots of stuff was on my mind. I, um, I want to watch the episode. Um, and I, uh, shoot, what else? No, um, no worries. No pressure. I, pr I appreciate you calling and giving us that update about what's going on. Congratulations. Good luck. Fingers crossed with the uh, signature campaign. And thank you so much for your support, Laura. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good night. Have a good night. Let's go back Thanks. to the front. Seth, what's on your mind this evening? Hey. Hey. Um, yeah, so uh, I've been uh, itching to talk about the war in Ukraine, but uh, not tonight because of who you had on today and what you discussed. I think that's uh, Swant said things that are more important to talk about, but I'm hoping that soon you'll have a more um, Ukraine-centric episode. So I would call in and talk about that because I definitely uh, I have things to say about that, but like I said, not right now. So as far as what Sawant was talking about, um, there were a few things. One is you were talking about the, or she was talking about the possibility of forming a workers' party and what's needed is a workers' party. And you were kind of digging into that and you were kind of like, yeah, but like, how, how are you going to do that? And Sawant kind of acknowledged that like, we don't really have a way to do that right now. It's not really possible. And, you know, you sort of, you moved a little bit into the idea of like electoral reform and the discussion of ranked choice voting. And, you know, that's kind of, that's, you know, the basis of, of what I'm doing, the organizing I'm doing really is that, you know, I think within the existing electoral system, a workers' party is not possible. So it's putting the cart before the horse, so to speak, to talk about the formation of a workers' party within our system. Because, I mean, I'm going to kind of skip over this part a little bit because I have other things to say. But essentially, the two-party system is not going to be broken by telling people, well, actually, just vote for this third party. because there's just too much fear of fascism and you can, you can debate it, you know, whether or not you think that's valid or whatever that people should be, or they should just say, nah, screw it. If the fascists win or they're not fascist, you might say that, but if the Republicans win, they win. That's just a risk we have to take. You know, that's a debate we can have, but I think realistically, no matter how much you debate it, you're not going to convince enough people to vote third party to actually get us control of the government in that system. So um, she was talking about, and I guess you were both talking about ranked choice voting, but to me, the the better approach is proportional representation, which I last week when I called in, I kind of mentioned this, but I was going through everything so quick, I didn't get into any detail. Well, a proportional representation system for people that, that don't know what this is, is think of it like this. Everybody votes for when we vote for the House of Representatives for Congress, everybody votes for the party that they want to be in power. And then each party gets a percentage of seats in the Congress equal to the percentage of people that voted for them. So let's say, for argument's sake, if Socialist Alternative is a party and 25% of people in the country vote for Socialist Alternative, they would get 25% of the seats in the Congress. So if you compare that to ranked choice voting, I mean, there's a few things, but the one that I think is kind of the most pertinent to this audience that's the most important is that you, with proportional representation, you get more representation from where our support is concentrated in the big cities. Like if we have, you know, cities like Philly, Atlanta, New York, et cetera, where we have a high concentration of, you know, progressive, socialist, communist, whatever, and 
you know, you could get like 70 or 80 percent of people in those places, for argument's sake, to vote for like, you know, a left wing candidate. That gets you all of those people. But if you have, <clears throat> even with ranked choice voting, you're still talking about getting a single, a single winner per district. Even if you run up the score in the, the places where you're concentrated, it doesn't matter whether you get, you know, 51% or 60% or 98%, you still get the one seat. So you get less representation than if it's proportional. So this is a proportional system is the best way for us to get the most power. And then when you couple that with abolishing the Senate, which again, I'm not, you know, I have other things, so I'm not going to go too deep into that, but the, the Senate again is a two party system. It's single winner elections. And there's tons of other problems with the Senate, which again, like I said, I'll skip over that. But um, another thing is that the, the approach of socialist alternative and really most of the, I'd say all of the left at this point, really, except for the thing I'm doing pretty much is that um, they're focusing on economic demands like, you know, Medicare for all. And the thing is, those kind of demands can be dismissed as, look, if you want Medicare for all, win the elections. We live in a democracy, right? But if your demands, if your protests are for democracy, they can't say that to you. They can't say, well, if you want democracy, win the election. Because our whole argument is we can't win the election because the system, the, the electoral system is set up against us. So when you're talking about a revolution for for one thing, democracy is a much more popular idea in this country than socialism. And also the, the sort of moral ideological framework is much better for a revolution based on democracy and the electoral system being unfair, rather than us saying, these are the things that we want, give it to them because we're protesting and we're angry or whatever. So, you know, I, I look at that from kind of multiple angles is why it's more strategic to go for democracy. And also if you go for the other kind of revolution and if it's let's say a group like socialist alternative or another group like the revolutionary communist party or even dsa which is not a revolutionary organization so that's not going to happen but what you end up with instead of a democracy is necessarily a minoritarian dictatorship because if they're not going to be fighting for democracy in a democratic electoral system then you're going to end up with that party is going to be the one taking power and whoever they decide to let in so the the other thing that she mentioned that i think is important to talk about is she was talking about the recall, like I mentioned this last week, but she mentioned it in a different concept, the recall mechanism. And she's talking about it in the organization that you're building, like in Socialist Alternative or in DSA, whereas I'm talking about it in the actual government. So th there's a difference in approach here. What she's talking about is like, if you understand more about what their ideology is in terms of like Marxist-Leninism, they're really... And I mean, it's it's tough to pull this out because like they don't necessarily talk like this, but this is maybe a bit presumptive, but this is me kind of my understanding of, of where they really are. They're trying to build a prefigurative situation where they're basically saying our organization, this is going to be like the new country and the new government. And we're structuring it this way to sort of take over as like, like I said, a revolutionary minoritarian dictatorship takeover. And that's that's what they're planning. Whereas what I'm talking about is a movement that has a much larger scope that can bring in lots more people and it can do it faster, which is demanding a new electoral system for everyone and new elections. And then when we're talking about, she also was, you were both talking about worker democracy. To me, I think once we have a political movement like this built, once we have this idea kind of in the, you know, in the stratosphere, in the milieu, and we've got, you know, millions, tens of millions of people protesting for democracy, I think it's a pretty short path to then go from there to workplace democracy, which also 
for us to win is probably going to have to be part of this. We're going to have to be pushing for people in specific places, like in the media, for instance, the workers in the media. Like if they don't want to platform us, if they don't want to show us protesting in the streets, if they don't want to show what we're saying out there and they want to try to co-opt our movement, we're going to need people that work in like wherever you're talking YouTube or Twitter or NBC, CNN, the people who operate the cameras, the people who, who are the production crew to basically just say, we're going to platform these people. Like you don't want to talk about them on the air. Fine. We'll just point the camera at them. And that's what we're going to broadcast. So I, I know that's like a lot that, that I just threw out there at once, but you know, for, for me, it's kind of short. So I, I'm interested if you have any thoughts on that. No, I mean, that, that sounds you know, all very compelling. I see some responses in the chat that I'll get to, um, but I want to just appreciate, uh, say that I appreciate you dropping all of that on us, Seth, and for, for calling in. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to put Terry in the next seat, and I'm going to read Lyserg42 says, one issue with proportionals, deciding who is at the top of a list in a party is usually done within a party within party themselves. And as a voter, you can only support the party as a whole. In France, there was a proportional election where the number two on the Green Party list was an anti-vaxxer, and there was no way to support the party without supporting her. Good Starfish says, just grow socialist alternative until we can walk on our own, and that we can't depend on parties to stop oppressive techniques. I mean, I think, you know, I think proportional sounds interesting. I, I don't have any context for why that hasn't been the emphasis of a party like the Green Party. That's a question for um, Jill Stein or someone else from the Green Party or any other third party, forward party even, because they've emphasized ranked choice voting. There's a, that's a question for them when they come. I don't know if they think it's less plausible um, that Americans will get behind it. Someone else in the chat said proportional is great, but it's just not a part of American culture. But I certainly do think that was informative, and I appreciate that comment. Terry, um, when you're ready, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Terry, J123. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) Sorry. I was actually. (laughs) Look, I have you on speaker. Is it a problem so far? Uh, So far, it doesn't sound like it. I don't hear my own feedback. So go ahead and shoot. What's on your mind this evening? You know what? I I hopped on because of a comment that another caller had. (laughs) And now I feel silly, you know. You can go backward and forward. Time is uh, an abstract concept. It's It's not real. It's not linear. Shoot your shot. Right. It's just that it's kind of like, um, what do you call that? Relitigating stuff from the past. It's but okay. Anyway, Look, not... That's what the love loves to do. Let, let, <laughs> let, 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 let me not deny you. Who who am I to deny the left's <laughs> greatest joy and pleasure? <laughs> All right. Well, I, I just want to say that before I say it, I just want to say that, you know, I don't feel as passionate anymore about it. But anyway, the thing is that somebody else had said that, um, you know, I forgot his name, uh, but he said uh, that Bernie should have... Um, uh, announced Nina Turner as the pres, you know, vice president. Um, what else did he say? Something like that. Anyway, the thing is that what I mm-hmm. want, I I hopped on right away <laughs> because I I I don't know about that. I I I wish. Oh my goodness, I love Nina Turner, <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. definitely supporting her now. But uh, I don't know that. I, 
sometimes, I don't know, maybe I have that pundit head, you know, <laughs> that mm. they talk about, pundit mm. brain or something like that, mm. where, you know, you think, but I do try to look at things sometimes from, um, you know, the position of someone that doesn't follow politics as much, you know, mm. and mm. I don't know, I don't know that the reaction, you know, uh, would have, maybe it would have seemed desperate of him or, or, and, and, and have we, I mean, like, is, can Nina Turner be vice president? Has she been, I mean, I know that, um, Obama was senator for a short time. I mean, sorry. No, that was running for president. I forgot what the uh, qualifications are. If any. There are none, except for being 35 years old and a native-born American. Oh, then, then for sure. You see what I'm saying? I just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I she, don't know. she can be. I mean, the question of politically what that does for Bernie Sanders, whether exactly. it's that it helps and hinders him, you know, that those are all different questions. What constituency she brings in affirmatively. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and I, to be honest, I just don't think there was an, a bad chance in hell. I mean, I love you guys, but sometimes you guys talk about Nina Turner and the stuff that happens in the campaign. It's like a fantasy land. I got to say, <laughs> like, exactly. it's just a fantasy That's land. Like, like, that was not going to happen. I don't know what to tell That's you. Like, no I disrespect like. to anybody. I don't anybody. even know if Nina would have felt like, what did you just drop on me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were trying to like, it was difficult to like get Bernie in a room to have a conversation, much less picking people as as exactly. a, a vice president uh, my understanding i mean like i don't have any insight i don't have any actual knowledge but maybe i'll have this conversation i know that ari robinhoff who's been on the podcast before who was yes. uh uh deputy campaign manager originally originally chief of staff but then became as one of the three deputy campaign managers the campaign ended up having um, he's written a book and I'm going to have him on to talk about it. He's going to tell a book about the campaign and I'll ask That's him if there right. was anybody in, in mind in particular. However, my understanding was that it was going to be someone relatively more moderate because that, that was the constituency that Bernie struggled more with and that it was going to be someone that he liked among the younger, moderate, more diverse Democrats, someone like a Cory Booker or frankly, Kamala Harris. Oh God, <laughs> well, you know, so I just, the idea that it was going to be Nina Turner, Nina Turner gets him as you can see with what's going on and how she's being vilified in Cal in a, in Cleveland, not very far with the black constituency when the democratic party apparatus aligns against them. She was called a misfit black girl during the campaign. Progressives who like Nita Turner already like Bernie Sanders, not a person on the planet who knows who Nita Turner is, who doesn't know who Bernie Sanders is. So it's just the political calculation I'm not sure is there. As much as it would have felt good to us, we already felt good. If Bernie won the primary, we didn't need any other convincing, you know? Oh, my gosh. You said everything I wanted to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 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 That's what I, that's, yeah, I immediately pressed the button, like, I I, I hopped on, you know? And then, of course, I wasn't going to get off, but, uh, but, yeah. Anyway, that's what I had hopped on for on the phone for all right well i'm glad you did it was nice talking to you oh and and by the way i got here late too i got here late too by the way um i was talking to my sister in florida when i got your notification so i couldn't Mm -hmm. hop on until it was like 50 minutes in so i really didn't even hear the first like 
50 minutes of the, so I don't even know what else to say except to comment on other callers like I just did. Well, that was perfect. I love that. And it looks like a lot of people, you know, were engaged with you and love your energy in the chat too. So thank you so much for calling in, Terry. And the good news is, is if you want to listen to this episode later at the beginning, the part that you missed, you can listen to it here once it posts on Colin, or you can listen to these episodes, everybody on uh, Spotify. You can subscribe to it on Spotify, just like any other podcast and listen to them that way. So thank you so much for calling in, Terry. It was nice meeting you. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Let's hop around. Let's uh, hear from Chris. Uh, Chris with the Betty White avatar. What's crackalacking? Hello? Hey, Chris. What's hey, on your mind this evening? Hey, great. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Um, my name is Chris. I'm a middle school teacher in Alabama. And Wonderful. And a huge fan of yours since way back in the Bernie days. Oh, thank um, you, I Rick. think, I think that it is really good that you're doing the hill. Um, you asked that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that's good that you're spending. I, I appreciate the content you're making there. And I think it's good, you know, to get anything that you're doing out to as many people as very. Let, let me ask you guys this, because this is my conundrum. I do feel a little bit like. I don't want to be forced to weigh in on the latest mask mandate every day. Cause I gotta be yeah. honest with you. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I just don't and care. Robbie and really I cares about that. I, I hate that. having to manifest an opinion out of anything. Oh, you know, Pierce, Donald Trump sat down with Pierce Morgan. What's yeah. your take? My take is that Donald so Trump looks kind of sweaty. I don't you, know, man. So you enjoy <laughs> Like as a guest, but you don't think you're going to like. No, I mean, I, 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 I'm leaning toward doing it. I'm just saying that I, I just, that, that is my feeling of uncertainty right now that I do, fe- I, I worry about contributing to a media cycle that yeah. pushes culture issues but some and would petty stuff. Argument that at least there, that your voice is in that in mm-hmm. some way, you know, a voice of, um, I mean, you're kind, of, you're kind of leading me to one of my next questions. Mm-hmm. I have like two questions I want to ask you about. One of them is how much, you know, freedom do you have in that capacity as a guest host? Like, uh, you know, how much editorial freedom do you have to talk about what you want to talk about? I mean, time. I mean, you suggest you can suggest topics and certainly your radars are your own. But the reality is that when you're in a kind of algorithm driven space, I mean, of course, bad faith is too to a certain degree. But I don't make money on YouTube, you know. My, my right. salary but is paid for the Patreon. Hill, right? I'm, I'm sorry. Neither does the Hill, though, right? They don't make money on YouTube. I mean, like, what I'm one of the things I'm getting at is that. No, the the incentive is to do videos that get clicks, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's it, you're but not told it, that you have to, but a hundred percent, the subjects that are suggested are suggested because there's an understanding that if I if I want to do a segment about how low union density is and how great it is that, you know, Collectivo Coffee unionized last year, it's going to get, you know, 10,000 views, maybe 20,000 views. And then yeah. if I do an epi- a, a, a segment about how Dr. Fauci lied to us, <laughs> then it'll get 100,000 views. And well, like, you but, can't, I mean, you're, we're, we're human beings and it's impossible to ignore us, those incentives. Many of us would like, okay, you are one of the greatest and most brilliant and gracious 
uh, communicators of our time. And a lot of us need you as a model to have conversations with our friends. I, I'm in, I live in Alabama, you know, like I have to, <laughs> my friends are people who want to talk about the latest mass mandate, you know, and which is fine, you know, but I, having you as a model on whatever platform, <laughs> um, even if it's one for clicks, because we wouldn't have the content about, um, you know, the latest polling numbers from your, you know, from your perspective, if, you know, that material is getting to an audience on the Hill that it doesn't necessarily get to on Bad Faith or Katie Halper or whatever other show, you know, whatever other content you're doing. I think it's really cool that you're on the Hill and there, you know, the way that I have found you was through a lot of, you know, online, you know, liberal sphere from back in the Bernie 2016 campaign days. Mm. So, you know, things have changed a lot, but for people like me to find you now, the Hill might be the only place to find you at first. Yeah. I mean, one of my incentives is that I, I've been on Twitter a long time, guys, and people can make fun and say it's not, but I'm not, I can't, no, 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 I'm I'm making it a different point. I'm saying that I've been on Twitter a long time and that people can make fun and say it's not true. But, you know, I know that I am not like, I don't, Twitter doesn't do anything for me anymore. Like I can barely get a (laughs) hundred likes on a tweet. It's pathetic. Like I, there's no, I don't go on Twitter anymore. I I retweet my stuff. I post my podcast and I leave. There's like, to the extent that, you know, Twitter users make the content and for them to like suppress the people who have been making all of like making Twitter, (laughs) you know, it's like, okay, fine. Good luck without me. Like I'm not, I, there's, why would I spend my time on Twitter? I feel invisible there. There's no point in living there. So for me, yeah, I, I do. I am seeking out other places to find an audience, whether it's the Hill, whether it's posting on Rumble and other kinds of sites like that, whether it's starting a Substack, because I'm not going to beat my horse head against the wall. Like if I can go from having zero subscribe, you know, zero followers to 350,000 in a few years by myself, I can certainly do that on another outlet. But like, yeah, I agree with you that 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 is the appeal of rising but i do feel i don't know when you're hosting a show someone's in the chat is just like say say i don't give a shit about the segment just say that honestly no i'm a <laughs> host of a show i can't there's there's a whole team of producers that are working very hard and that are yeah. designing segments i'm not going to shit on everybody's work and act like like i hate when guests do that on my show when when you invite someone in your show and they're like well i don't think this even really matters why are we even talking about this but that's one of the ways that you're so Because I told gracious. you this was the topic and you agreed to come on and talk about the topic. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't yeah, then yeah. just be like you don't care. Like that's rude. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I wanted to ask you about what something that Will Jawando said mm-hmm. um, kind of at the end of the segment about mm-hmm. forgiving student loans. And mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if he was like it was it, it was kind of flippant um, and I don't know if it's kind of a throwaway line or if it was something he really thinks the Biden administration is considering, but something about uh, waiting until just before the election to actually forgive the student loans as an electoral strategy. What did you notice that? Wait, what did he say? What did he say about student loans? At the end of the segment mm-hmm. that he was on on the mm-hmm. Hill, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he said something to the effect of it was right at the at the cutaway to the end of the segment, the music started and everything. And he said something to the effect of, 
you know, maybe student loans will be forgiven right before the election as an election strategy. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you noticed that. And what yeah, you thought- I mean, pe- people, people have said that. I mean, that they're trying to draw it out. There's a, cause there's a theory that either you do it right before you can boost interest, you do it, you say that you're going to do it right after as a way to say, oh, well, I'll only do this if you vote. I mean, it doesn't really make sense because it's not like you need Congress to do it, but like that's, that's right. Which argument. is but, right. I, I, I guess I don't like, really think anything it. about it. I don't think he's not going to do it. I mean, they've said that they're going to do at least 10,000. I mean, Jen Psaki has said on the record recently in a way that she doesn't have to, like there's no reason for them to commit to it and then break the promise. I mean, I mean they've done that before. They, they set a one year deadline yeah. for George Floyd and they broke that. I mean, this, I'm not saying it's unheard of, but in this case, I don't see why they would, in this context, double down and commit to at least uh, commit to the 10,000 and, and not do it. So I do think 10,000 is happening. I just think that 10,000 is a waste of everybody's time to be on it. I mean, not everybody's time. Obviously some people will be benefited by that a great deal, but I think that loan abatement is more useful for almost everybody than 10,000 like continued loan abatement. Cause if you have at least uh, let's do some quick math. If you do, if you have, let's say $30,000 of student loan debt, the average is 37,000. So let's just round it up to 40. Cause I'm not that good at math. If you have $40,000 of student loan debt, which is very close to the average amount of student loan debt, and you have an interest rate like mine, which is 8%, you are uh, paying $3,200 in interest every year. So if you, if you take three years to pay off your loans, you're already, that's, that's $10,000 in interest. So right now we're coming up on, we've, we've had our loans frozen for two years. It's coming up on three. People are about to have already gotten $10,000 of state savings just from the lo- loans have been loans being paused for three years. And that's, if you have that little debt, me with my big ass debt, one year, you know, $10,000 is one year of interest. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm not trying to be like ungrateful or, or whatever, but like, the idea that they're dangling ten thousand and and let me tell you they no, they I lied they're, they're lying liars way but I, I want to make this point I want to make this point they're lying liars today on Pod Save America <laughs> or maybe it was Uh-oh. yesterday okay um they, it was an episode with Elizabeth Warren I haven't even gotten to her interview yet before she even starts to speak they are lying liars and they lie and say that Joe Biden um, promised a maximum of ten thousand. A maximum of 10,000. That is a goddamn lie. He promised a minimum of Mm 10,000. And he also promised to cancel the entirety of debt for all graduates of HBCUs who earn under $125,000 a year. Uh Uh-huh. And $50 minimum wage and, you know. Yeah. But I'm just talking about student debt right now because that's what he can do. I, 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 I am... They are very clearly trying to lie and bait and switch. They never talk about the HBCU thing. Would I have structured it like this? No. Do I think there should be $125,000 a year cut? Do I think all these hoops and hula hoops and and gauntlets are ridiculous? Yes. We're not even in the realm of talking about what I want to be talking about. But Joe Biden is president, and all the libs want to say, Brianna, be practical. So this is what it sounds like, Brianna being practical. Brianna being practical is saying that they lied like lying liars. On Pod Save America today, and you should go and tweet at them and tell them all you're a lying liar Life for misrepresenting <laughs> the idea that Joe Biden said that he was going to cancel a maximum of $10,000 of student debt. You are the pigs at the end of Animal Farm 
subtly changing four legs good to two legs bad to two <laughs> legs good and thinking that none of us are going to notice it. And that's exactly the thing that they're going to do whenever they're t- t- if if they keep it on the plate as forgiveness in any kind of capacity right now. Like right now that it's dangling out there like a carrot and it's never going to happen. Uh, it, they're keep it's an electoral strategy just that it's there and they haven't said we're not going to do anything. But when, when it comes down to it, they're not going to do anything. Like, <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. not going to do anything. And I think we need to go ahead and say that out loud right now. And Will Juwando talking about, oh, well, maybe he'll do it right before the election. Like even, even saying it cynically, <laughs> like if he's saying it, and I don't agree with that being a moral strategy mm-hmm. to dangle these people around for, you know, two years w- waiting to see if you're going to do anything about our student debt. Right. Like, would you not know, be able to have rely, re- the reliance interest, but all business owners would right. never fall for this shit. Oh, I can't just. It was. I moved into a new apartment. Economy. I mean, it's ridiculous. How can we plan? How can we plan our lives? I moved into a new apartment thinking, well, I have more income now. I have more flexibility because I, I don't, I'm not paying $2,300 a month, right? Like that, that, that's money that can go to rent. I mean, obviously right. not all of it, but like I, I increased my rent and I'm living in a one bedroom now and I'm very happy, but who knows when that rug is yanked out from under me. T- t- tell me about, th- tell me about your life, Chris. You're a teacher. Did they make you get some kind of, did they get, make you get a master's degree or something and do this? Uh, no, but uh, not in Alabama. You don't have to have one. No. Okay, good. What, what do you have student debt? Oh yes, I do. I have probably about 50 or 60 left. Oh Lord. Okay, yeah. so we're we're talking like more than an average teacher salary, right? Because Bernie wanted to make yeah. it so no teacher makes less than sixty thousand dollars. So I know, I know, right. And what kind of payment plan do they have you on? Well, I mean, I was on like a five hundred dollar a month thing, you know, based on my income before mm-hmm. you know, before President Trump, mm-hmm. <laughs> President Trump, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's give him his flowers. You know, I'm from a person who it I, I would never consider to be, you know, praising him for something. But look, best, it, best it, thing that ever happened to me in my life. I'll tell you what. Me too. Me too. Fork over that five hundred dollars has been great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And you know, but there are people who are waiting. I mean, I'm forty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I teach in a field with a lot of young people who are coming to the field, and a lot of people. You know, we have salaries. We have a decent life with great health care. Um, and that, you know, we're, we're, we're fortunate in many ways, but also, you know, we don't make enough. And it's a harder job, you know, every two, every year, especially. Yeah. It's just, it's anyway, as things go, we're pretty privileged in many ways. But a lot of people, even people who are professional teachers, you know, young people are waiting to start a family because they're yeah. like, <laughs> You know, should I do it now or should I? You know, Not so young people. Your girl is almost 37. Right. Hey. <laughs> I mean, the thing that makes me so mad about it is the people that we're going to be told to go out and vote for who could do things about it right now, could have done things about it two years ago. Yeah. You know, are, are not gonna. <laughs> They're just not gonna. They're going to pretend again. And then they're not gonna. Yeah. So it's, I, I can't anymore, you know, like I can't, you know, I can't vote for Democrats anymore. I mean, yeah. maybe in a local, but yeah. I just can't, you know. Yeah, I um, hear you, Chris. 
the progressive ones, the, you know, all of them. Um, to follow Pramila Jayapal right now is just, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear, uh, this is another reason that I appreciate your content on the Hill and every single possible place that it could be. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see that people are being able to speak, you know, honestly about Pramila Jayapal and, and the way she's, you know, it, I appreciate your content. So, I mean, the main reason I wanted to call today was just to, to fluff you up. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Um, but I, I appreciate your content. You're brilliant and gracious. And it's a thing that is a, is a strong, um, it's a strong combination of characteristics for people to be able to model themselves after in my community. Well, I, I really do appreciate that, Chris, and I appreciate all of your guys' support. I, I am concerned about what happens sometimes when I move into different kinds of spaces. I, I feel, a, you know, a, a somewhat heavy sense of obligation um, to do the right thing, and your guys' support means the world to me. So thank you for calling in, Chris, and take care of yourself. And let me tell you, I will never not be an advocate <laughs> in getting your student debt and Hell your yeah. student debt and your student debt. You get student debt forgiveness. You get forgiveness. Yeah. We got to program the Oprah sound effect into the soundboard for next week. That's next. <laughs> hey, keep hollering. Keep hollering. All That's right. Thank you, Chris. Bye. Let's bring up John next. I'm not familiar with this avatar. John, what's on your mind this evening? You going to unmute yourself and talk to us, John? Hey, um, can you hear me okay? I can. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Um, so yeah, I'm John. Uh, I'm also known as Neoliberal Tears on the internet. Oh, um, Neoliberal Tears, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I, I Just like all the other callers, I have to say how grateful I am for for your voice. And um, especially with the 50, with Jayapal and the $15 wage, I just, I remember reading that once in like the Time magazine and I thought I was reading it wrong. I just couldn't mm. believe that someone who campaigned on $15 wage, like so strongly, um, all of us, like that, that they would be able to get away with something like that. And then when I first posted about it, like people were trying to tell me I was reading it wrong and I didn't understand. And um, so, yeah, thank you again for always speaking our truth to power um, and killing it on rising. Well, I um, appreciate that. What's funny about, I was, th I was reflecting on that article because, you know, it's obviously relevant in this moment. And I kind of think the reason we got that tidbit was because the person who wrote the article didn't really see it as a flaw. Like they were arguing that Pramila Jayapal was kind of a mover and a shaker in advancing the interests of the Democratic Party by corralling all of the progressives and keeping them from voting, uh, from withholding the vote on $15 minimum wage and the COVID relief bill. So they threw it in there thinking, if anything, it made her look good. And that just really speaks to the huge disconnect between where the left is and where the kind of people who write these articles in Time Magazine are. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I mean, that, that's not even computing for me that they would think. Yeah. When she was saying, like, you know, how, like, you know, progressives should learn how to take a win. You know, I think yeah. that was really traumatizing. I, I also remember um, her interview with Marianne, I thought was really revealing um mm -hmm. in a lot of ways when marianne was pressing her really well actually um was an in amazing terms of like interview. everybody right? should go back and listen to that interview in fact i was considering yeah. just doing a live stream 
listening oh my God, to 100%. it and commenting on it because it is it, like should be in the historical archive as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> There's so much there. And I think what got me, I would love to know what you thought about. Like, I remember Marianne pressing her like, you know, OK, so what are the next steps for Medicare for all? It's your bill, as you love to tout. Um, and then Pramila actually made the case that she was saying, something about, well, we have a Medicare for all pack, which will help train and recruit candidates in how to speak about the issue of Medicare for all and counter all of the right wing arguments. And I just I couldn't believe my ears like, you know, the issue isn't that people need to be any further convinced. It's that it's that the people we elected somehow are weren't who we thought they were. Right. And, and and that's why I also think I am actually like lonely on the Internet. I, I have hope in electoralism mm. because of that reason, um, because it's our only way to vote people out of a job, you know, and there there's some nothing more exciting to me than the possibility of um, Pramila getting primaried by Kshama Sawant. Um, mm. You know, and uh, you know, and 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 not being able to be the minority speaker that she's wanted to be for so long. I don't know. What do you think about about that perspective? Yeah, I mean, what's funny is, even though I'm largely with the team anti electoralism, I see how everybody's ears perked up and everyone got kind of pissed off with this Chantel Brown stuff. Like at the end of the day, whether it's logical or strategically valid, we all still have our emotional commitments to various candidates and push come to shove. I think we all have people who we would still get excited about and rally behind, either because we find them to be, you know, substantively people with more integrity, like Shama Sawant, or whether it's because some combination of thinking they have integrity or just having nostalgic commitment to them, like uh, Nina Turner, or because they feel like they've been wronged, even if you don't really believe they're going to do anything different, which is why we think some people feel about Nina Turner. They're maybe like skeptical of her as a candidate, but they are still just pissed off that the establishment go against her. And it's like my, my enemy's enemy. It's like, fine, I'm going to rally for Nina. You know, I think that in our hearts, we're all there for somebody. And you see it with the energy around this even abstract idea that Bernie would run again. I mean, a lot of people who are like, well, yeah, Bernie's had his moment and want to have criticisms of Bernie's campaigns are suddenly like, well, yeah, for sure. I, <laughs> he's better than Biden. He's better than, you know, Andrew Yang or um, Ro Khanna or whatever progressive they're going to try to get us to do. Well, let me see if I can push back a little on the Bernie point. I mean, I'm I'm not brave enough. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try. Here's my thing with with Bernie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from Israel originally, and um, when I was 17, I went to an international school, and you know, uh, and basically that changed my whole perspective on on Palestine and Israel, and that's why Bernie was so. It was such a monumental moment for me in 2016 when um, I, I found out about him. I was working in New York for the city, and it. It inspired me in a way nothing really had until that point. Wait, what politics. international school did you go to? Oh, it's called um, United World College of the Atlantic. It's in Wales. It's an IB school. Um, oh, interesting. And, you know, I went to yeah. all international IB program schools. So I was just curious. What? How old are you? Sorry? How old are you? Oh, Man, sure. I'm, I'm 31. Um and, and single so for anyone on the call. Just kidding. Oh. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I was just curious because people travel around so much from school to school. You often end up meeting people. Um, but go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. So you went to this school and it changed your perspective on Israel-Palestine. Yeah, no, please interrupt me always. Um, and and thank you for always interrupting Robbie on Rising too. I think you're just, you're, you're really, you know, you're, you're, you're a fighter there. Um, 
I, I yeah, so that seeing someone like Bernie being Jewish and outspokenly pro-Palestinian was really inspiring, but it's sort of like in 2020, I just couldn't feel the same excitement um, for for reasons that other people have, have touched on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was kind of also disappointed with the fact that he outraised Biden by a lot, a lot. I mean, there's a book called um, Lucky uh, by Amy Parnes and Jonathan Allen, uh, the same people who wrote Shattered, and they go through how really Biden just got really lucky. Um, he, he didn't have the money. And, and it felt like Bernie was sort of hanging up the towel when, when, when he didn't really have to. Um, mm. And that, it was just disappointing to me in a way that I'm not sure that he'd be able to bring back those people from 2016 who voted for him. Like, I'm not, I'm not confident that they'll come back around in 2024 or that the Democratic Party wouldn't just use it as an excuse to fundraise off of Bernie uh, until the very last moment and then pull the rug from under him because they made it clear they weren't going to make make him the nominee. I remember that mm-hmm. debate when everyone was going around and saying, like, you know, would you support the nominee no matter what? And all of them were like, oh, or the, the candidate, what is it? The candidate was mm-hmm. the most delegate, so not super delegate. I can't believe we even have to deal with the super delegate question mm-hmm. at this point in time. Um, yeah. So, Anyway, that's, yeah. Well, let me ask you this hypothetical. Here comes Bernie, and he calls a press conference, or he, he goes on the news and says this, or does it from a live stream, whatever. And he says, I've got something to say. I've heard a lot over the last couple of years about how people are disappointed that I didn't stick the landing on my campaign. I've had time to ruminate on these criticisms, and i got to say, you have a point. This time around, here's the pledge I'm going to make to you. I will not be running within the Democratic Party. I am a proud independent. I have been an independent senator from Vermont for the last 40 years. I feel like I have been running outside of my truth. And this time around, I will not be beholden to the rules of the Democratic Party. If I feel like I have been disrespected and treated unfairly by the system, I will be running a third-party candidacy. My, My vice president will be in the name someone who everybody loves. Maybe it's Nina Turner. Maybe it's Tulsa Gabbard. Maybe it's, I don't know who, but some, you know, maybe it's Noam Chomsky. Maybe it's Jill Stein. I don't know. Pick, pick your, maybe it's Cornell West, whatever floats your boat. And I'm, I'm going to be uncompromising. This is a campaign that's about corporate greed. I'm going to call out the greed within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party equally. And if you want, I'm going to obviously be taking no corporate donations. And if you want to get behind me, here's the campaign. We're going to be an organizing effort. Win or lose, this money is not going to go to high-priced million-dollar consultants. It's going to go to mutual aid. It's going to go to local organizing. We're here to build a movement for real this time. And if anything happens to me, know that it was not a heart attack. It was a plant. <laughs> they took me out. Avenge me and take to the streets. In this scenario, are you still not willing to get behind Bernie Sanders? Um, okay, let me. <laughs> that was amazing, first of all, and that's why I think you should be Bernie's VP out of absolutely everybody in the world. Everybody in the chat, come on, throw the love. Um, we know we want this. So here's the thing: I think that would be asking Bernie to be someone he's not, and or he's not willing to be. And here's, I remember the conversation you had with uh, Morgan Harper, who was like, you know, such an excellent speaker, um, really accomplished, worked at the CFPB. And I had a thought when I was listening to it, because I live in Indiana, but uh, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the Ohio border. And I was like, why can't I get excited about this 
this person. I really want to. Um, and I think the problem is, is and this is what you identified um, in your amazing Bernie speech, um, is that you can't run as a progressive anymore and not run specifically against the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and win our support because the enthusiasm isn't there. You have to run exactly like the way you just laid out, like saying right off the bat, if I don't get the nomination, I'm taking a third party. This is why I'm doing this. Um, and also speak to the disappointment his a lot of his people who donated last time or in 2016 feel and say, I know I've let you guys down, but this is why it's going to be different. And and when they screw me, this is my plan. And I mean, I can see that restoring some of the, I hate to say that, like, you know, like he doesn't owe us anything. I know that. But like, I think speaking to that disaffected Bernie voter, for lack of a better word, would maybe that would go a long way. But I don't know that he's that person who would ever leave the Democratic Party Um yeah, I mean, I don't think that there's there's no chance in hell that's happening. I only bring up that example to say that when people say they can't get excited about candidates, they wouldn't get behind Bernie again. I, I hear what they're saying, but I think that they're saying that because of who they, you know, not because of the possible, you know, I think it's possible that they could under certain conditions. And what they're really saying is they need X, Y, and Z condition, and they don't think the X, Y, and Z candidate is going to fulfill that. Not that there's something intrinsic to the candidate that makes them unwilling to ever trust them again. And I don't know what that difference means a lot to me. I think as a comms person, I kind of narcissistically think there is a speech that could rehabilitate anyone. <laughs> um, and I'm always interested in figuring out what that line is and what the combination of words is that is going to satisfy what the people are really looking for in any given moment. Obviously, you know, for it to be sincere and, and not for it just to be a lie, right? But I, I, I'm trying to identify what the actual concern is. It's not that, like... People are over Bernie. They don't like Bernie. Da, 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 is that they don't have any confidence that he's going to do what he's going to take because we saw him not do it twice. And there are there is potentially, I think, probably a series of words that Bernie or anybody who was going to make this run would need to say to demonstrate that they are they are going to take that adversarial position. And they got to say some things that they can't take back in terms of you know openly being hostile in a way that makes it seem real. Because, you know, it's the, you got to say the kind of thing that's going to draw the ire of the establishment to show you really mean it. You know, you got to glue up to the bear and smack it on the nose. I, I, I actually I agree with you 100 percent. I think and I think the progress if, if a progressive wants to win, I, I, full disclosure, I'm part of a third party. I'm, I'm not going to say which one because I support all of them. I think mm-hmm. they should all collaborate and be stronger instead of taking each other down. Um, but I think. Um, I just think it would be hard for Bernie. It would be hard for any progressive to not if they if they don't run like from a messaging perspective. If they mm-hmm. just run on fifteen dollar wage and Medicare for all, at this point progressives have dropped the ball to the point where people just don't believe them anymore. It mm-hmm. just it, it makes them angrier <laughs> to hear mm-hmm. those kinds of promises. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 I think it would it would take a willingness to leave the democratic party if he's if it comes to it and and do you think bernie would ever even consider something something like that no but it's nice to dream <laughs> um oh, come on guys like this isn't me it's not like i'm well, like drawing on an experience of 15 tea time chats with bernie every tuesday on the campaign you know i'm i'm, I'm making this 
assessment from the same information that you all have about Bernie Sanders. And you know, do you remember? I love. Yeah. I, I think he's great. You know, I, I love the guy, but no, I don't think no, no, I don't see that happening. Uh, but I'd love to be wrong. I'd love for someone to be playing this clip back to me a year from now saying, silly, Brianna, I didn't think it could happen. I would love to eat crow on this one. Uh, I, I, we would all love love to, to eat the crow here. Uh, but do you think maybe Nina would would be able to change her? I think it's sort of maybe as a as a proxy battle week. Uh, like I would I think it would have definitely ginned up more enthusiasm, for example, if if she did run against the maybe I'm just saying that. Uh, because I don't understand anything and I don't know, but it seemed to me like there was a lack of enthusiasm. And when you run against the establishment, that's the thing uh, that people are at this point. That's the only thing people will get excited about right now, I think. Um, and do you think she's will she would be willing to to make that change? Or even I thought to myself, like you know, if she just like called up the march for there wasn't a march in Cleveland. If she just called up those people and said, "Hey, like, let's do, let's collaborate and do something." The weekend AOC gets here, like, let's do something together. Let's let's help each other, you know, instead of making it an either or thing. Or I don't know. Do you think Nina might take that route? So I think here's 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 the rock and a hard place. I think that Nina find Senator Turner finds herself in. I think that. She lost last time fairly narrowly by 3,000 votes. There are new district lines that are advantageous to her, but more of the black part of Cleveland is in her district now than it was before. You know, more people than she lost by in the kind of neighborhoods that she won by are now in her district. Uh, one, One in are now in her district. She also was hurt last time by a shifted uh, primary date that ended up advantaging Chantel because she got the influx of money later in the game, you know, which she was able to do more with because the date got pushed. And then the television ads ramped up so that there was a lot of hostile energy on TV. Every other commercial was one of their negative ads. And I think that also inured to Chantel's benefit. And the big thing was that she sent her flyers out um, early at the same time the absentee ballots went out and did a lot of campaigning in uh, um, elder facilities and um, dialysis centers and things like that. And those people sent their uh, absentee ballots in early before Nita Turner's campaign uh, ads went up and flyers went out. So what ended up happening was she won with the early vote and Senator Turner wasn't able to catch up even though she was winning with the in-person votes, the day of votes. This time around, since there's so many factors that are different and you could learn from the one's mistakes and because she lost so narrowly, there is an argument that Senator Turner shouldn't go balls to the wall, full on, you know, the Nina version of the Bernie speech I just gave and that she should just basically play the same game and hope for a narrow, that narrow shift to happen in her favor. But who knows if that's really how the world is going to work. If they're, they're the DMFI and all those people are pouring money in that crypto billionaire is pouring money in, it could get even worse and more stacked against her. I think this time around Senator Turner is having some fundraising issues because people have lost enthusiasm and they're not seeing this battle as the justification, the, you know, the validation of the left, the way that we, a lot of people saw it and were invested in it last summer when everyone was still real sad about Bernie and looking for someone to rally behind. 
So while I would like to see her go fire in brimstone and like truly run the ideal left campaign that we've all been fantasizing about, I can also understand why from a practical perspective as a person with a campaign and people who work for her and who's invested a lot of time in her life to doing this and is like taking the slings and arrows and being smeared as an anti-Semite and all this stuff that, you know, I think is, is a lot for a person to take on. Does she want to make it all for naught by going fire and brimstone balls to the wall in a place where maybe if she just played the same game slightly differently that she did last time, she could win. And I don't know, you know, I can feel how I feel, but I, I also appreciate why someone would be on the fence about taking that kind of a risk when it's not, you're not like down in the ninth inning, the way that Bernie kind of was where we were hoping he would do a hail Mary after super Tuesday. She's not quite, down in Super Tuesday land where Bernie Sanders was. Yeah, I just, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because I think as soon as you start trying to play that game, it's sort of what it telegraphs to voters, at least, is that you're trying to be careful or you're trying to, you know, and that's just not the, I don't think, I don't feel that that's the landscape that progressives will win in, uh, you know, at, and if they can't, if they can't go balls to the wall in Cleveland, how do you prove people that you're going to go balls to the wall in Congress? And how does that allow, even the people that would like a more conservative Democrat are only going to go for Chantel? Um, you know, it's it, and, and yeah, but it's, uh, not, also, it's, it's not ideological, I would say, in Cleveland. It's not like people are like, I mean, there are I did a little phone dialing and there were there were a couple of people. I'm And I got to just say this white affluent people in Brentwood, uh, Beachwood, uh, who were like, I don't them. like her. She seems like another another squad member and da, da, da. I mean, there are some people like that, obviously, but the average Cleveland resident is not making a decision saying, oh, I think we need a pragmatic solution to America's problems. I want Chantel Brown. No, they're just like, oh, I saw negative ads. I didn't like them. You know, I don't like the negativity, so I'm going to go with Chantel. Like, they, they'll attribute the negativity to one or the other and then like make that kind of a choice or oh i just all seem like kind of gross to me so i'm sitting this one out and they also try to erase the differences between them and say like look chantal is for if chantal is for medicare for all like i think she even said that in the debate she had with nina in the primary um she yeah. said i'm for for all actually which seemed just like a it's something i'm sure someone told her to say so that you know that to basically erase the most highlights the, the most of the the most highlighted differences between them Right. Which is why I think she she has to differentiate herself in a in in a different way if she wants to win, like sincerely, um, and excite the base because I think right. But she doesn't have yeah. to excite the base. But like this is I'm just trying to like I, I want I want everyone. I think this is really instructive. Exciting the base has a purpose. I think it's a purpose that Nina Turner should not ignore. That purpose is raising money. Why does Nina Turner have to excite the base, but Chantel doesn't have to excite the base? Because Chantel takes corporate money. But here is the paradigm that gets set up for progressive candidates. For a progressive candidate to keep fundraising pace with a corporate candidate, they have to say the kind of things that work on a national audience, but in some cases could potentially, not always, but could potentially hurt you in a local audience. Now, I think you can thread that needle and thread that line. And I don't think the local audience gives a hoot. If Nina Turner were to come out for force to vote, for instance, she would have like not lost our trust. Right. 
at the same time that no one in Cleveland cares one way or the other. They don't know what the hell a force of vote is. And she gets the best of both worlds. But, like, that is a conundrum. That is, like, a trade-off that just doesn't exist for corporate candidates. Because Chantal Brown can walk around with a gag ball in her mouth, basically not saying anything. I mean, can anybody here for a million dollars pick Chantel's voice out of a lineup? <laughs> not here, not me. Um, no, nobody knows. I don't know if I've ever heard, like, I barely ever heard the woman speak. So, yeah. you know, that, that, is the, that is the dance that people have to do. So, so people, I think, in the Turner's position often think, well, I'm going to play it safe. But then they suffer on the fundraising. You know, you're making me think of such a – there was a great article by Dan, Daniel Marins about the, the Needham and the Chantal race. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were also some – I'm wondering, do you think – like he was saying something about how Chantal – like she had volunteers, like um, I think they were Orthodox Jews um, who were, you know, like they sent them, Apex sent some, I don't know, I, I'm, you know, my people. And they went to like Jewish supermarkets and registered people to vote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, do you think there were anything, anything besides money that like a volunteer effort that Nina can take this time to push her over the edge um, in, in, in this particular primary? So, again, keep in mind, all that happened, and she only lost by 3,000 votes. Okay, and it was a special election and all of this stuff that was not helpful to her. This time, it's better for her. So even changing nothing, those tactics might not work. The problem is, and this is a – I'd love to talk to you about this. There is an interesting dynamic at play where Nina Turner doesn't really strike back against some of the – Fact that these corporate groups like DMFI are pouring money into Chantel Brown's campaign, people who have donated to Republican candidates, the Patriots owner guy, all of these like terrible people, in part because when she does, she gets smeared as anti-Semitic. DMFI yeah, and that's, that's the corner they try to push her to. Right. And we all know all the times this year I've been called anti-Semitic. This is like the game plan. You know, and I'm not going to say that I'm sitting here and say that there haven't been, hasn't been anti-Semitism among some historical black leadership and all of that stuff. I'm not going to sit here and say that, obviously, but it also has been a game plan that has been used a lot against black political leaders over a core period of time. And so she's in this interesting position where I would normally argue to a candidate, if someone is doing shady practices, call them out for it and use it as a fundraising opportunity. But she, this is a little bit of a catch-22 where – you know, there's an argument that says this is a predominantly black district and you're being, you know, mar- feeling like you're marginalized and silenced in your own among your own community because outside money is pouring in to have, you know, to, to stigmatize you. And no one's being no one. No one's calling anybody racist. No one's calling anybody anti-black. Somehow you're the only one who's the bad actor in the scenario. Right. According to, you know, all the smear campaigns and everything. And it is interesting to me that this is there's this dynamic where Nina Turner doesn't feel confident in a predominantly black district, the sixth poorest city in America, Cleveland, you know, my mom's hometown, <laughs> to say I'm a black woman being smeared by outside groups in my own city. How dare they have me on the rails, have me on the ropes? Because to me, that like I know a lot of black people who would be very frustrated by that reality. And feel a sense of solidarity with her over it, right? You know, we all do. I mean, and I'm, yeah, a hundred percent. And and I think she tried to frame it, if I remember correctly, as like GOP donors or Trump donors, which is correct. Um, but I think what you said, what you identified as is, is stronger. Um, mm-hmm. These are outside fundraiser flowing in, and 
Of course, like I've been called anti-Semitic. I'm from Israel. Like every progressive that exists needs to know right now, you'll be called anti-Semitic. Like it's not personal. It's just the way things are. And, and I think, LOL. and the way they corner you into that argument is by scaring you into not reacting. So you know, they just they throw these attacks at her, and if it doesn't feel like she's fighting back, it's almost like that's their plan working. Uh, so I 100% agree with you. You have to like. for lack of a better term, bolstered wall uh, against these attacks. You know, they're not in good faith. Um, and and I thought that, I think she got like a rabbi or something to speak on her behalf, but that's just mm-hmm. not enough. You have mm-hmm. to... When, I think, the- me personally, I think you got to go on the offensive. I, I know that's risky and I know that seems so scary. And people, I got to say, I'm, I'm kind of thick-skinned and I know myself and my truth. And, you know, people can sit here and do a ticker tape of you're an anti-Semite to me all day for the rest of my life. And it's like annoying. I prefer that not be the case. <laughs> I prefer I not be Googled and for some article about how I'm an anti-Semite to come up. But if that's what it takes, that's what, it, that's what it's going to take. I think the way to handle something like this is to go on an offensive and change the narrative of something that you like. But, the, the, I mean, the reality is, though, if you say outside money, DMFI is going to say, oh, this is an anti-Semitic trope to say that, you know, big money Jewish interests are funding your opponent. You know, that, yeah, but they're not is... talented communicators. I mean, no one, like, they get ratioed on Twitter all the time. Like, they're, yeah, they're not going to win that argument. You know what I mean? Like, people see through, like, they can say whatever they want. I mean, they're, they, they get paid a lot to say whatever, but it's not convincing. They get paid a lot to say whatever. That's an anti-Semitic stereotype, John. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, no. That, that's, that's the way I mean, like, that's I'm just, I, I look, I agree with you. I think that you just got to take your licks and push through when you back down. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, do we have to convert Nina to Judaism? So that, that card, I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. she can attack them more. I, I really think not reacting is worse than going on the offense. Yeah, or just apologizing is is worse. I, I mean, you have nothing to apologize for. Like, that to me is the worst. Like, issuing these kind of statements to say, of course I'm not anti-Semitic. I work for Bernie Sanders. He's Jewish. Like, this kind of stuff. It's like, say something performa. I guess you got to say something, like, in a little statement. But then you got to say, why is everybody having this conversation? They want to distract you from the fact that this is the biggest poor city in America and none of this leadership, Democratic or otherwise, has done anything to serve this population. Here's concretely what I'm going to do. Like that, that is what it has to be. Um, and that takes a certain amount of confidence that I'm sitting here, you know, as a, as a backseat driver, a Monday morning quarterback talking about, and I understand that it's really tough. And I think that Nina Turner is in a tough spot, but you know, I think that's what's got to happen. It's what it's got to be. Great. Um, and, and thank you so much, Bree. And uh, also, you're killing it on Rising. Uh, and, and please consider joining it full time. You're like, you're really like our voice in the left chair. You know, it just feels so right. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, John. This has been very helpful to me also to work through some stuff I've been thinking about. This is I'm really enjoying this. Thank you so much. All right, Ja, you may or may not be the last call. I was going to cut it off at at two hours and 30 oh. minutes and now we're so close to three hours i feel like i might as well go to 11. well stuff has been so good you know it's uh, this has been a nice conversation i like the tone and the, the energy of everything tonight it's been really nice how you doing brie i'm doing well i i, I feel like 
you know, sober enough to confess to you that I had a couple of um, margaritas before we started today. <laughs> okay, that makes and sense. And then <laughs> with my I dinner, mean, my taco like dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had I had drinks with one of our favorite activists. I want to blow up her spot um, uh, this afternoon, and then there was like a little bit of lull where I felt myself withdrawing and getting a little sleepy in the middle. But I'm back. I'm invigorated. <laughs> Glad to know you back. <laughs> yeah. Back. Um, well, but what's how are you doing, Joe? What's on your mind? Uh, I'm a little heartbroken. I um, my mom felt, found a stray kitten and I took it in and got the Humane Society's help, uh, you know, yesterday and got the whole kit. And uh, about four o'clock earlier this morning, the kitten died, and so I've been a little oh, mopey today. Ja, and, I'm uh, sorry. I tried to bottle feed him and and everything. It was it was intense, but I'm good. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> well like um, god bless you for even trying to rescue and nurse this stray i feel like at least you clearly gave the kitten some comfort and warmth and love in its final moments that it would not have had if you, it had not been rescued so i hope you're yeah, feeling it, some sense of gratification in that a little bit you know it, it would have been euthanized you know once i took it mm. in to the uh the humane society first but yeah i took a chance but um, yeah, anyway, I, I had two small items here and I wanted to talk about Antonina. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of brought this up already about the whole thing that happened with Force the Vote and how she was, you know, kind of singing the song of, oh, you know, our elected people, they're going to disappoint us sometime and we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, which is the most frustrating thing ever because no one ever lets us in. Like, it's, it's not like Rokan is going to let us in on what's the real underbelly of, of the internal politics um, that are going on there. But, but yet we're, we're, we're always getting that thrown up on us that, that we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I don't know, like how much, how much do you think Nina would really do if, you know, say she won her, um, her next election? Like what, what could you expect to honestly see from her after that incident? That's a question that she has got to answer. And mm-hmm. I think if I were giving advice, which again, no one asks me for ever, I just stay given <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I would say that she, part of her fundraising issues are because of that. And she could try to start mm-hmm. to cure them by admitting that she was wrong about that. Perhaps even being honest and I'm making this up. I don't know what happened there, but Perhaps being honest about the fact that, you know, I talked to X, Y, and Z person and they assured me that they were saving their political capital for $15 or whatever down the lines. I was told that there was a plan and I believed it because I trusted these progressives like a lot of us did at that time. And Mm. I was wrong. And I learned a valuable lesson there. And I think a lot of those progressives thought they were telling me that in good faith too and they were wrong. Everybody was believing mm. in a system and a and a bigger plan, and in this last year has demonstrated that that absolutely wasn't the case. And I'd buy I that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that I think that's some that's a version of the truth. To be honest, I don't think that it mm-hmm. left people off the hook for them to be so naive because obviously we all saw it. And yeah. you know, I would have I want better for them because other difficult moments like that are going to come up, and I want someone who can exercise good judgment on the fly. Well, yeah, I mean, did you see that whole thing where she went on um, Crystal Kyle and Friends and they kind of asked her directly about Force the Vote and she was kind of being a little funny style and like not. Recently? 
No, it wasn't oh, back recently. When it they, she, yeah, yeah. She she just was on recently too, but yeah. no, yeah, that was back a long time ago. And I, I don't know. I, yeah. Again, I'm just no, curious I had about it on what bad faith. She came on bad faith, and I asked her about it, and you know, oh yeah, she was yeah, a little funny style, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that was before I was being like at that time because you guys gotta remember like we had this idea. Jimmy put this idea out there and I was like, this sounds good to me. And to me, it was like, okay, let's hear the counter arguments. I wasn't like, I know I'm right. At first it was mm-hmm. okay. This is a good idea. Let's hear the counter arguments. And as the counter arguments were increasingly stupid or non-existent, that's when I started to get all big and bold in my britches, but it was a gradual process. And so Senator Turner came mm-hmm. on, I think it was our Thanksgiving episode. So that was very early in all of this. Mm-hmm. This force the vote popped off mid November. So maybe it had only been percolating like an, a, a week. So by the time Senator Turner came on, it maybe she was wishy-washy on bad faith. At that time, it didn't feel – I wasn't like as aggressively pinning people down. You know, there was more open wiggle room for like maybe there is a better way. Maybe there is a reason we shouldn't be able to do this. You know, we were all still in the thinking process of it all. Um, so, yeah, I, that's all to say I think that she would – be benefited by taking that stuff on and talking about it directly. I think Corey Bush and all of them would be benefited by sitting down and doing some interviews about just saying, Hey, this was a mistake. I disagree with Pramila Jayapal when she says that the bifurcation of Bill Back Better was well handled. I think we should have held the line. I, in retrospect, I wish we had held held up the COVID relief for $15 minimum wage. Look, okay. I, I'm, I, maybe I'm a sap, but I'm a pretty forgiving person. If some of them just ate a little crow, and apologized and admitted that they they were convinced by Pramila or they were convinced by Pelosi and they were made promises that didn't come through. I'd be like, well, you were dumb and you shouldn't do that again, but okay. Mm-hmm. I hope you learned yeah, your lesson. You never... and I hope you talk to us and not talk to them. You know? And you never get that. And you can't even, I mean, has she even said anything about the whole betrayal and about not being in, like, has, has any word come out? I haven't heard about anything. I haven't heard anything so far. Like I said, I reached out to the Bush campaign because she seemed like the one that was most likely to be willing to talk because I was at an event, you know, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Nina Turner and Michaela Wilkes and Imani Oakley and just, I think, four or five black women progressive candidates. I went with Marianne. uh, Afini was there um, with Michaela uh and she works for Michaela. And, you know, Cori Bush showed up toward the end and was very supportive of all the candidates, specifically Nina Turner. Hmm. So it seems to me, I, I, up until the PCP, uh, CPC endorsement, I assume that Cori Bush supported Nina Turner, endorsed Nina Turner. And so I'm very curious what she makes of all of this. Yep. Yeah, I am too. I think it's wild that we haven't heard anything. Just downright wild. But, Not a tweet. But then again, Brianna, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. So, right, you right. know, right? That, that's so the thing. Always that. Everybody who accuses us of being conspiratorial and stuff, it's like there's a really easy way to end the conspiracy. Just talk to us and tell us why we're wrong. Give a credible story. <laughs> and I'm happy to let stuff go. I'm happy. To, uh-huh. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I don't want to think the worst of everybody. Tell me a good reason why and I'll let it go. But what happened with Force the Vote? <laughs> Was AOC got on Twitter and started talking stuff to J- Justin Jackson, and and he had good responses and she didn't. And Pramila Jayapal went on on um, Mariah Graham's show and on Marianne Williamson's show and lied about Kevin McCarthy. 
And they kept Aww. saying things that made me and all of us feel more confident that force the vote was right. And they were being intentionally dishonest in some instances or just uh-huh. disappointingly ignorant in some other instances. Yeah. Well, I don't even know. I mean, so, okay. So my second item real quick, mm-hmm. we've been talking about the, the, the merits of electoral politics and there seems to be this sort of dichotomy that's happening or this, we're kind of stuck between these two worlds of electoral politics and, you know, various kinds of organizing, whether it be protests, um, you know, sabotage, like on the um, uh, climate change episode or labor mm-hmm. organizing. But I was really wondering about uh, mutual aid and like what it is that we can engineer together with the things that we all have at our disposal um, to replace or to, you know, replace our reliance on the systems that are already in existence um, you know, kind of like what crypto was saying that it was supposed to be, you know, are you interested in exploring those sort of things? And do you know anybody that is interested in talking about those things? With crypto specifically, I got to say, I not crypto. am not, you guys have heard me trying to understand crypto. I feel like you can see my brain growing three sizes, like the Grinch's <laughs> heart or something trying to cram. It's like, I'm like, I'm like the juggalo, I'm like the juggalo magnets. How do they work? Like, that's who I become. <laughs> Every yeah, time someone starts trying to talk to me about some blockchain, you know, you guys have heard me try. Don't say I didn't try. I'm not intellectually incurious. We've done like three crypto episodes at this point. Your girl is trying. So mm-hmm. with respect to crypto, I'm going to leave that to more capable humans. Uh, generally speaking, the idea of amassing our resources as on the left, I mean, I think about it all the time, you know, maybe there's an opportunity, you know, people have been talking about Andrew Yang putting to get using his resources and gain putting money together for media infrastructure. I've, I've had, I've heard about some uh-huh. other folks that are trying to use some of these platforms like rumble and where they feel like the algorithm is more friendly to non-corporate content, people willing to throw money at folks to, to start to try to do something over there enough money that could give me an infrastructure kind of like what crystal ball has where she has like real cameras and producers and can do that kind of newsy setup and there's something appealing about that but in terms of kind of putting together a broader mutual aid project as part of that i mean it sounds amazing and ambitious but again someone's got to start somebody yeah, with time and resources has got to start i mean with with pitter patter about someone like Marianne running for president. You know, when I think about Marianne, I think about how amazing it is that now that I'm in DC with her and we have a relationship, I see her putting together groups of people all the time, getting people in a room, getting activists in the room, getting journalists in a room, getting staffers in a room together to talk through issues and have these salons. That's really incredible. She's kind of a natural, a natural organizer. If you sit down with Marianne and say you want something, need something, she starts going through her Rolodex and she will draft the email right there in front of you over dinner immediately in the moment to try to connect you with whoever you need to be connected to. And she will follow up and she will get stuff going. And sometimes I think to myself, well, would, would the, you know, I don't know what she's planning to do, but like, you know, is the energy better spent with her putting together the network like you described? Because I believe that someone like her can do it. She's a force. As opposed to running an election within the Democratic Party that's going to be thwarted for all the reasons we've talked into the ground. Well, exactly. And which which is worth trying at this point with, you know, the amount of desperation that we all have and, and 
the, you know, the clock running out on, you know, several support systems and not to mention, you know, our main life support system, the planet, mm. you know, like w- what is really worth trying? I'm, I'm really interested in exploring that more and seeing where that could lead. But yeah, that's, that's my two cents, Bree. Well, I appreciate you calling in, Ja. It's always lovely to hear from you. Oh, it's nice to be back, um, Bree. Keep up the good work. Oh, and on, on rising, um, you know, change. It's inevitable. Embrace it. Something new and challenging and, you know, that's, that's going to shape you and, and you're going to shape it and it's, it's going to become something new. Everything's going to become something new. Yeah, go with it. I think it's cool and interesting. And, you know, everyone needs to see your various hairstyles. Um, you know, in <laughs> did you see me not washing my hair for two weeks? <laughs> did you see me in that um, slick back bun trying to just glue it down? <laughs> oh, look, you did it, though. You know, wasn't even no stray hairs or anything. Look, you had it. I was so tired this week. <laughs> After rising, I was, like, complaining to someone. I was like, I have not. I mean, like, I washed it, but I scraped it. But I haven't been able to blow dry my hair, do a twist out. Because waking up so early in the morning. And my friend was like, Brianna, immediately after rising, just go to a dr- blow dry bar. So that's what I did today. So I'm sitting here with ridiculous straight hair with loop-de-doop curls <laughs> that I hate. I can see it in my head. <laughs> but at least my hair is clean, ladies and gentlemen. It's clean and washed and straight and ready for a bomb twist out tomorrow. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I can't wait, Bree. Good luck to you. Keep the faith. Thank you, Ja. Keep the faith. All right. All right. Who's the lucky last one? I, I shouldn't say it like that. Like this is a prize of some kind. Um, let's go with Craig. I don't recall ever seeing Craig. Craig, unmute, your, unmute yourself and then bring us home. Ooh, it sounds like a lot's going on over there at Craig's house. How you doing, I'm Craig? <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. What's on your mind this evening? Uh, always so much, but uh, I know it's getting late. I don't want to keep you on too late, and I just appreciate uh, the space and allowing us to come on and talk like this. But uh, you know, getting back to the main conversation with electoralism, and I'm the green. So, <laughs> if anybody has any questions, please you know fire away anytime. But uh, y- y- we need everything. We need to look at all different op- aspects and options. And uh, I met Kashama a few years ago when she spoke mm. at our. Uh, convention out in Utah. And um, I I just wish that the left didn't abandon us in 2020 because COVID was rampant. The only party that was putting out a platform to really help everybody was the Green Party's platform. And, And Howie Hawkins, who may not be known as the most inspirational person because all you saw Howie Hawkins was on live stream. But if you actually met the man, we're in a room with him. He's actually a really great inspirational speaker. But 2020 basically killed any momentum that we're making from Jill Stein's campaign. So he had an expansive platform of left unity. And he actually went out and embraced the Socialist Party and brought the Socialist Party's vice presidential candidate, Angela Walker, from the term before on to be his vice presidential nominee. So that was the whole thing. There was this whole left unity. He had some DSA chapters endorse him and those people got ragged on for it. And honestly, I wish there would have been more vocalization from the left to, to, to say, Hey, look, why can't we consider this? He's the only other alternative since obviously the Democrats threw what 
20, what we say, 26 other candidates uh, to, to eliminate Sanders out of the primary process. So uh, we can't eat each other up and we have to be, you know, embrace alternatives. That's why I'm glad that Howie was trying to do everything he could to appeal to all these other independent parties and, uh, and get endorsements. But I wish the media was there and obviously it was really tough. So if there's any, you know, chance you can in the future, uh, you know, to have him on and debrief him and his take on 2020 and, you know, what, what the party needs to do. He, he's always very uh, willing to speak, but, you know, we just keep trudging on as a former candidate locally myself. We just got to, you know, just literally pick up the pieces, look at the scenario, look at your local races, see your candidates. Obviously, yeah, it's going to be tough to always donate, but if you can't donate, share it, tweet, whatever you can do just to get the word out. But uh, we've been doing our best and, you know, we are growing in despite not seeing it. <laughs> our memberships have gone up. Registered Greens have gone up in New Jersey from when I got involved in 2016 to, you know, we had, what, 2,971 Registered Greens. Now we're at 11,006 and change. So there has been movement in the right direction. And, you know, if you go back and look at the party platform, we had a universal basic income in 2010. Mm. We're supported reparations in our platform in 2010. Mm. Howie himself was the first to campaign the United States on a Green New Deal in 2010. Then Jill followed in her 2012 presidential campaign for that. Jill was can calling for canceling student debt in 2012 and 2016. So there's a lot of ideas that start, obviously, in, in certain spaces and certain movements, and we embrace them first. And then you start to see some Democrats bring some of them aboard, but it's, it, it's, I wish people would realize that there, there's a reason where they, there's a place where they come from and there should be more inclusion, but it, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough road. I just want everybody to kind of embrace the electoralism, but also if you can get in the streets, get involved in the movements We're we're in these movements, me and myself during COVID, a lot of us, we started mutual aid groups we're also involved in ranked choice uh, voting organizations, trying to pass that through too. So we're trying to do everything we can in our on our limited time. But you know, I, I just want to bring everybody aboard and and just move us forward and just try to be as often as you can. So if you're if you're supporting a Democrat in a primary, great, you know, and get involved. But if if they don't win, you know, should you toe the line in the election? No. If they if that candidate who won doesn't earn your earn your vote. And your respect, why? Why just fall in line? Yeah, I mean, Craig, you're preaching to the choir, uh, at least with respect to me. I, you know, I very famously voted for Jill Stein in 2016. I voted for Howie, Howie this past year. I don't know that I've ever said that explicitly. I've been not trying to give, at least closer to the election, everybody ammunition to come for me for, you know, the same reasons they did in 2016. <laughs> I voted for Howie. I didn't vote for no goddamn vote Joe Biden. You know, for what? <laughs> I live in Washington, D.C., um, so I, you know, I hear you and I'm curious what you think of the fact that I think it's undeniable that Jill Stein performed better than green candidates have done historically, probably than anyone since Nader. And I found that there was a sincere energy that I felt in 2016 around her more so than just like the default green party candidate. Cause you want to register your dis distaste for the establishment you know, I saw her doing media interviews. I heard her in some of my favorite podcasts. I watch her flip the politically reactive guys from making fun of her 
in earlier episodes to saying they were going to vote for her in California. You know, I, I, you know, she was the subject of, um, you know, derision, but she was the subject of like, uh, cable news sketches on, uh, that dumb scene. What's her name? Samantha B. <laughs> Samantha B. Show, and and stuff like that. Like she was in the mix, and I don't know if that was just because of Donald Trump and people being so fearful of him winning, and they did a scapegoat, and the Democrats were just trying to really vilify her because they felt like the, re- the election was so close or what. But it was it felt good, even if it was negative attention. It felt good to feel like the Green Party was in the part of the conversation. And in 2020, that didn't feel like it was the case at all. And I wonder. What do you attribute that? It was it about the circumstances, or was it about Jill Stein as a candidate? And if it's the latter, why is the Green Party putting forward more kind of charismatic, incredible candidates that can start to improve the brand, for lack of better words, of the Greens? No, no, I'm I'm glad you say the word brand because I, I, you know, I was a Bernie supporter. I I mean, my 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 past is long. I don't want to get into that, but. You know, I, I've been in, in the sphere for a long time. I fell out and then came back, you know, after not getting hope and change in 2008. But then, you know, supporting Jill and then giving Sanders the chance. But I think that you saw there was a distaste towards the political establishment. I think where, where everybody needs to come to their own actualization or realization when they're just done, you know, and it can be on local politics. I'm in New Jersey the total machine politics here and it, it, it's corrupt <laughs> all throughout. And I, I hear it on every level, local level, county levels, commissioners, even you know, just the regular delegates, things like that. So a lot of people just get tired and fed up and, and that's just Democrats chewing up and spitting out other younger people that are trying to get into the party. So it just comes to your own personal look, I'm done. And I, it came to me later in life. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm just I can't go back to that and support it. So that's why Jill had momentum in 2012. And yes, you do have to build momentum, you do have to you know, get into the into the space. And honestly, that night that Jill was on CNN, I think that was the most hits Green Party ever had on their website. Like, there's still people now that sadly don't even know what a Green Party is. When I campaign locally, they're like, what's a Green Party? And, I'm shocked after all these years, but it, it's there. It's still mm. there for the taking. So the branding does need to enhance, and, uh, and we're doing our best. We run real campaigns. We've had good cam- candidates in California before, Kent, Kenneth Mejia. We had uh, Jake Tonkel recently. And then we do have candidates that are working with DSA. You know, there's some there's some people that think that, the you know, DSA has got to be all about just working with the Democrats. But no, there are times where DSA is tired of the Democrats in their cities and they will endorse and support a green candidate. We had uh, Franca Mueller Paz. She ran in uh, Baltimore and uh, she did, you know, did amazing for her first showing. And honestly, there's times where we can collaborate, work together. I I would rather see more of that than Mm -hmm. to basically go and just try to pit each other against each other. But you know, there's different ways to do it. It's not easy running campaigns. It's just more about being a little more strategic. And we always see, you know, say, oh, the election was so close. But if you actually look at it, if you go to like California, which there was almost a 30 point divide between, uh, you know, a Biden and a, and a Trump, you go to New York, 20 point difference. Those are areas where why can't we get a, an ability to say, hey, look, this is predominantly a one-party state. Why can't we get 10% of those people to vote for the Greens? Because we're trying to get to 5% just to get to minor party status and, and, and FEC money. 
And then if we get to like 15% is when you get to have a, a formal party like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ross Perot created after his independent campaign. So I, I just don't want to see it fall to another populist right-wing candidate that decides to just throw independent, throws his name into the hat to run for president one day, mm-hmm. get 15, 20% of the vote. And then you have a, a, a party based around those politics. Why can't we get together and just realize it more strategically? You know, New Jersey was a huge gap and I deal with it all the time. I'm like, hey, look, there's certain races where you can definitely vote Democratic, but if you know your state is swinging all the way, one way or the other, why can't we work towards getting some of those people to vote green just for the uh, uh, the common goal of trying to get another party, major party established in this country? And ballot access is just an absolute nightmare. You know, each state, you got to look at each state. Uh, I feel bad. You know, we're talking about Ohio with you know Nina's race, recent mm-hmm. race, but we needed 3% of the vote a few years back and Constance uh, Goodell Newton ran in, in Ohio and she didn't get 3%. So we lost mm-hmm. ballot access there. So now it takes us so much more time and energy, money to go and petition to get signatures to get back on the ballot. And there's little talk about what Cuomo did during COVID. Howie Hawkins had run for governor of New York and for three cycles had get, gotten us and garnered our uh, ballot access in New York State. And now, because of COVID, he was able to pass through some changing on legislative to take us off the ballot. Now, instead of just being there, because he achieved a certain amount of percentage as a gubernatorial candidate, now we have to file and get 45,000 signatures mm-hmm. in like a month and a half to just get back on the ballot. This is where we have to look at certain states more strategically and, and, and try to ally and unify. And yeah, I think they, I, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I got to I got to I have someone who's coming up and I got to let them in my apartment. So I've got to wrap real quick. But I really <laughs> appreciate you bringing the specific perspective of the value of electoralism, because, again, I don't think that people are over electoralism. They're over the two party system. And I think that a lot of people, if the Greens framed and emphasized more, and I know that you have done, and it's part of what I, I was trying to push in 2016 with Jill Stein, but framed the ballot access issues more front front loaded so that people don't have to have these conversations about, Oh, we're not going to win. Or I don't like this particular candidate. I think that's a really persuasive point for people who want to put their electoral energies there. So thank you so much for One that. One last Craig. thing, if you could, before we cut, if you I, could possibly have Matthew Hoan, he's running for us Senate in North Carolina. He's trying to get on the ballot. He's running an amazing campaign. He's got some uh, PSL and some DSA people supporting him. If you can have him on and talk about ballot access, he's a great motivational green that's running this year. Thank you so much for the suggestion, Craig. And thank you all for listening. I'm sorry I have to wrap kind of quick. You know all the things that I've said about clipping and doing all the things that's helpful, like in the videos, whatever, you get it. I love you. This has been a really great episode. I really appreciate all of you. Thank you so much for all of that concrete, factual knowledge, Craig. And as always, keep the faith. Oops. Oh
Discover signs. 